everybody, and welcome to Shift F1, a podcast about speedy race cars. I am Drew Scanlon. Joining me, we have Danny O'Dwyer. How are you, Danny? I'm excited. It's a new season. It's time to prime. Indeed it is. Also joining us, we have Rob Zachney. How are you, Rob? Oh, man, just currently drinking from the uh like fire hose of information coming out about the new cars uh right now and my thirst is slaked uh excellent we have got a very special show for you today uh, usually this podcast is sort of a companion piece to the formula one season we've got episodes uh, before each race, they talk about the track and, you know, the storylines going into the race uh, and then episodes after the race that break down uh, what happened. In addition to taking audience questions and covering the news of F1 and the wider world of racing, uh, we've also got a Patreon, patreon.com slash F1, where we release bonus episodes that cover racing movies and documentaries and a lot of other uh, fun stuff. But this episode is different. Uh, this is our annual preseason primer, which is designed to bring someone who has zero Formula One knowledge uh, up to speed, so to speak. Whoa. Uh huh. On how the sport works, who everybody is, and basically to to unlock the ability to enjoy races. You know, F1 has traditionally had a pretty steep learning curve. Uh, so our goal with this episode and really this whole podcast is to <laughs> flatten that curve. <laughs> And make the sport accessible and fun to watch. Yeah, I think that's that's something that perhaps has gotten lost over the years. I don't know. It's so strange. The, in the year of our Lord 2022, the F1 editorial community is so... It's abundant. There's YouTube channels. There's mm-hmm. multiple podcasts. When we started this thing, God, how many was it? Eight years, seven years ago now? It's I have 2014, no idea. I think. A long time. We're going to get that 10 year anniversary soon. The whole point of this was that... Oh, there's like no F1 podcasts, and there's definitely not one for lay people run by lay people. <laughs> and I suppose we are the layest. Yes, we have sort of over the by by the process of sort of mental attrition, we have, I guess, become more knowledgeable. But the 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 cosmic energy of Shift F1 is definitely welcome to this sport. We yeah. are enjoying it as sort of like lay people. We want you to also enjoy it as well. Um, and that's kind of the, the the energy that we bring to the now abundant F1 media discourse. I'm just going to call out listening to uh, early your early episodes. When you, after a good stand-in performance from Stoffel Van Dorn, uh, I believe Danny said, yeah, he gave me a raging Van Horn. And I was like, yep. This is this is what I've needed from F1 uh, coverage, honestly. Uh, hope I get invited on someday. <laughs> uh, we are very happy to have you, Rob, here for the last few years. Um, a, a large part, I think, of the enjoyment, at least for me, is coming from the personalities of F1. Uh, the, the drivers, the team bosses, etc. If you've seen F1's Netflix show, Drive to Survive, you have a sense of this. A lot of colorful characters in and around the sport. Uh, Later in the show, we're going to go through all the drivers and teams. Uh, But first, we're going to tackle how the sport actually works. Because as I like to say, if you don't understand that, you're basically just watching cars go around in a circle. (laughs) And that's that's not as fun. Uh, So a lot of you may already know a lot of this information already. So you, you could theoretically skip this episode if you want. But we'll also be talking about what's new for 2022. And there is a lot. 
So if you're curious about that, stick around. Uh, and just, I guess, a final bit of advice. This is going to be a lot of information. So don't worry about grasping all of it in one go, like every bit. Um, just kind of let it wash over you. And then when you're watching a race, uh, you'll remember, oh, that's right. That's that's what's going on. That's what that is. Um, and you'll also pick stuff up from the commentary, too. Um, yeah, so people have been racing cars as long as there have been cars. Uh, <laughs> but Formula One as a sports league officially started in Europe in 1950 uh, and has expanded worldwide in the decades since. Uh, and this is part of another part of the appeal to me because it feels a little like the Olympics. Like you've got theoretically the fastest drivers and the best mechanics in the world, plus a whole lot of money, uh, who are all there to build and race the fastest cars on the planet. And they are the fastest. You know, some other cars might go faster in a straight line, but in terms of racing around a track, uh, F1 cars are the fastest in the world. They get up to uh, over 220 miles an hour uh, on some tracks. Uh, most of the tracks are purpose-built racing courses, but a handful of the places that F1 goes are street circuits or sections of cities that have been converted into racetracks. We've currently got 22 races on the calendar this year, uh, though this could climb to 23. Danny will talk about the race schedule in a bit. Um, and each race is in a different place, which again gives the whole thing sort of a planet-wide traveling circus kind of a feel uh, that I really enjoy. Um so when F1 gets to a new location, there are a number of events that lead up to the race itself, which we collectively call the race weekend. So a typical race weekend starts on Friday with two practice sessions, and practice sessions are where the teams dial in their race car setups. So each, each track is different, you know, the number of turns, uh, the weather, the temperature, the altitude. Um, so the cars go out in practice and drivers give the mechanics feedback on what needs to be changed. On Saturday, there's a th the third practice session followed by qualifying, which is a bit of, bit of a misnomer because the cars don't really fail to qualify for mm. a race anymore. Um, instead, the qualifying session is what determines the starting order for the race. The fastest car in qualifying starts in first place. Um, qualifying is actually broken into three separate sessions of around 15 minutes in Q1, as it's called. All 20 cars go out onto the track and just drive as fast as they can. Um, try to set the, the fastest lap time. For the f slowest five cars in that first session, their day ends there. And they'll start in positions 20 to 16 based on their fastest lap time. The rest of the cars move on to Q2 where the same thing happens. 15 cars go out and go as fast as they can. And then the slowest five cars get knocked out and slot into positions 15 through 11. Then 10 cars are left for Q3, and at the end of that, we have our top 10 with the fastest car starting first, which we call pole position. Um, and despite sounding like a boring time trial, qualifying can actually <laughs> be pretty fun to watch. I don't usually watch practice sessions unless I'm feeling particularly starved for racing, but I always watch qualifying because with the time pressure that everybody is under, some really unexpected things can happen and it has a big impact on the race. Sometimes a car that's expected to do well can screw up for whatever reason, meaning that some underdog gets to advance to the next round. It's pretty fun. And the whole thing lasts uh, less than an hour. Yeah. And that, that sort of three uh, pronged version of qualifying is a result of trying to jimmy up interest in it. And I think that's one thing that's worth mentioning to a new F1 fan is 
hey, a lot of these things that Drew's talking about weren't kind of always the case. Like we, there has been a lot of change. This is a sport that adapts, you know, sometimes slowly uh, in more recent years, uh, pretty quickly. Um, but, you know, a lot of the rules and things that we have these days were not there in 1950, maybe not there in 1990, uh, but are sort of results of, you know, a, a sport that tries to keep itself fairly agile. Yeah, a lot of, a lot of patch notes for, <laughs> yeah. for F1. Uh, but then on Sunday is the race. Races are capped at two hours, so none of them last longer than that unless there is a, uh, a delay. Um, and the start, the cars start in the order that they qualified, and the one that crosses the finish line first wins and gets the most points. At the end of the season, points from all the races are tallied up, and whichever driver has the most points wins the driver's championship. There is also a team's championship called the Constructors Championship, which adds up the points from each driver on that team and declares a winning team. Last year, we had a driver win the Drivers' Championship who was not on the team that won the Constructors' Championship. It's not unheard of, but it is a little unusual. Yeah. I don't uh, need and two drivers to a team as well. That's right. Uh, and the championships aren't just for bragging rights. Drivers get bonuses from their teams based on where they... Uh, finish and the teams themselves get payouts from formula one uh that can drastically affect their next season because as you'll learn money talks in f1 uh now i said that this is a typical race weekend Mm. f1 has been like you just said danny they've been experimenting with a different format which we will see at three weekends this year uh in this format called the sprint format Friday has one practice session followed by qualifying. Then Saturday is another practice session followed by the sprint, which is basically a race, but only about 30% of the normal race distance. Uh, how you do in qualifying determines where what position you start in the sprint, and how you do in the sprint determines where you start the race on Sunday. And the, the whole thing here is basically a gambit by F1 to try and sell more tickets on Fridays. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, for it, the whole weekend. I'm, I'm not really a fan, uh, but it, it is something different. You may like it. Um, regarding points in a race, first place gets 25 points, the driver. Um, second place gets 18, third place gets 15, and it kind of tapers off down to one point for 10th place. Anybody 11th or lower gets zero points. You also get points for being in the top eight of a sprint. Uh, eight points for first place, seven points for second, and so on, down to one point for eighth. And additionally, the driver with the fastest lap during the race gets a point, which sometimes mean that you will see drivers make a pit stop to change onto new tires just so that they can try to get the fastest lap. But it only counts if you end in the top 10. Yes, that is a caveat. Although, you will also see a driver who's not in the top 10 get new tires, do the fastest lap, just to take a point away. It's actually pretty cool. Yeah. I, I, I like this. It's relatively new. It's a, it's a, fun, it's a fun wrinkle that they've added. And people uh, went speaking, for it. We weren't sure if people would go for it, but it's become a... And hey, the final it went down to the final race last year they were sure equal did. on points so that stuff mattered it's crazy yeah uh speaking of tires they are something you will hear a lot about since lap time is heavily influenced by tire condition uh the fresher a tire the more grip you have and the faster that you can take turns but if you wear them out too quickly 
the lap times can drop off a cliff as as they say and you'll have to put on uh new tires in uh in a pit stop uh but pit stops take a long time relatively speaking about 25 <laughs> seconds take a uh, lot shorter than most other racing series though yeah all, all told they take about 25 seconds the actual the car is stationary for if you're if you're good like two seconds it's mm. really impressive um but sometimes a team will leave a car out on old tires even though it's you know running slower because they would lose more time by pitting uh rob will have more to say about strategy but that pit stops are a big part of it um each car is required by the rules to use two sets of tires during the race of different compounds. There's three compounds of tires, hard, medium, and soft. Uh, hard tires last longer but are slower, while soft tires are fast but don't last as long. Uh, and and this, is, this is a key point of strategy, too, because since the teams know that they'll have to pit at least once to change compounds, some cars may, for instance, start on softs and be faster off the line and then switch to mediums or start on mediums to have a longer first stint and then switch to hards or start on hards, switch to softs. It all depends on the car, the track and the team strategy. And then weather happens and then a crash happens and oh, you're yeah. able to drive slower. So your tires last longer. It becomes this constant sort of mental plate spinning you have to do while you're while you're watching the race, which if you're not dialed into that, it's probably not as interesting. But once you start to like get the fundamentals of F1 under your belt, that's the type of thing you'll sort of like um, engage with next. And and that's kind of where a lot of the, the depth and enjoyment of races comes from. Yeah. And I should point out that the the whole like you have to use two different kinds of tires rule is thrown out if the car, if the race is declared uh, a wet race. Because then for safety reasons, every car can just... Uh, feel free to race on um, the wet weather tires, which are treaded. Um, whereas the the normal hard, medium, and soft are they're called slick tires because they're just a smooth bit of rubber and <laughs> are really hard to drive in the rain. Uh, so let's talk about the teams. As as I mentioned, there are twenty cars, two on each team. Uh, so there are ten teams. Some of these teams have names you've heard of, like Mercedes and Ferrari. Uh, others are owned by brands like Red Bull. Yes, the energy drink company. Uh, and others, like Williams, are just race teams owned by, you know, investment firms or billionaires. Um, oh, it's so sad to have to say that about Williams now. But I know. <laughs> they used to be a family team, but uh, they got bought. Um, having two cars per team makes being a driver tricky because, of course, you want to be faster than everyone, including your teammate, but you also have to be a team player. Uh, this can create some really dramatic moments, like when a, deci- a driver decides to ignore team strategy for their own glory. So that's fun. Uh, another wrinkle is that there are what we call works teams and customer teams within that the, that group of 10. And the distinction basically comes down to the engines that the cars use. There are four engine manufacturers in F1, Mercedes, Ferrari, Renault, and Honda, with an asterisk that I'll get to. Uh, a works team is a team that uses their own engine, basically. So that would be Mercedes, Ferrari, Alpine, which is Renault's racing brand, and, oddly enough, Red Bull, which had partnered with Honda, but took over their engine program when Honda left the sport. So now Red Bull makes their own en- Red Bull <laughs> makes their own engine based on Honda's design. Yeah, it's, it runs on Taurine, unlike all the rest <laughs> right. of the, the, the cars. Uh, conversely, a customer team buys their engine from one of these works teams. 
this is allowed in Formula One to keep the costs down because making your own engine is expensive. Uh, and there are a number of other cost-saving measures in the sport that are designed to make it more sustainable and to encourage more teams to join. The biggest, biggest measure being uh, the cost cap, which prevents teams from spending too much money on car development. In the old days, the teams with the most money could just spend every day testing their car in the off-season or during the season, um, you know, putting them in wind tunnels, running simulations, each of which had its own price tag. Uh, now, testing, wind tunnel time, and even computer simulations are restricted, uh, which makes things harder, but it also cuts down on cost. Uh, another intended effect of the cost cap is to create closer racing. Another thing that was common uh, with high-budget teams is that they just create cars that blitz the rest of the field, <laughs> making it not as much fun to watch. With the cost cap, the hope is that the cars will be closer in pace, since there is often a direct correlation with the money you spend and how fast your car is but not always in fact that's that's what makes underdog teams so fun to watch and that's something i want to stress is that when you get to know the drivers and teams and their capabilities you're no longer just watching to see who wins yeah you you get excited when a driver gets a surprise third place or even a top 10 finish is sometimes exciting Yes, last year was a, was a treat in many respects because we got a very tight race at the top right until the, until the end. I feel like the modern F1 fan or the contemporary F1 fan up until that point had really learned to care about the middle of the field a lot because that's where some of the competition was happening. But last year was terrific because we had it um, almost from top to bottom. The bottom was pretty much the bottom now. Yeah. Um. So next, we're going to go down the list of each team in the order that they finished the championship last year. The Constructors. Uh, yeah. Yes, the Constructors Championship, and uh, introduce each of their drivers. Uh, we're also going to point out what color the cars are, so you know which is which on track. Each team's cars look fairly distinct from those of the other teams, but the two cars on the same team look virtually identical, unfortunately. Uh, if you want to tell the drivers apart... Um, the easiest way is to look at each car's camera pod, which is this little T-bar on the very top of the car near the air intake. Typically, the driver who's been with the team the longest has a black camera pod, while the other one is a fluorescent yellow. Um, we're recording this before the season has officially started, so we don't know the cam- the colors for sure yet yeah. on the cameras. But um, be on the lookout for our, our on our Twitter account at Shift F One Podcast uh, for a camera pod spotters guide. Once we know for sure who's using what color. <laughs> uh, all right, so let's start with team wise the winners of the constructors championship. Mercedes, uh, owned of course by a German company, the F One team like most F1 teams, actually, resides in the UK. Uh, Their team boss, or an F1 parlance team principal, uh, is an Austrian named Toto Wolff, who sounds exactly like Arnold Schwarzenegger, and uh, according to Drive to Survive, may appreciate lifting weights nearly as much. Right. Uh, Can I also just say this is now the opening of get ready to listen to hear a lot of people with very esoteric names. Toto Wolff is your sort of like (laughs) aperitif to a, a or appetizer, I'm not sure which. I'm very um, uncultured. Uh, whatever the first thing is, uh, to to now uh, years of just hearing the most bamboozling name. Although Stoffel Van Dorn was mentioned earlier, so maybe that was it. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, if you're racing F1, you have to have a weird name. Um, 
The Mercedes cars are silver and black and are driven by two British gents. If you know of only one current F1 driver, chances are it's Lewis Hamilton. He is 37. He has been in the sport for 15 years, and he has won the championship seven times, six of those in the last eight years, and missed out on one more last year by the tiniest of margins. Uh, and although he has dominated F1 during that time, there are many reasons to be a Lewis Hamilton fan. For one, he is the sport's only black driver uh, and is one of the few modern drivers with a humble background. Racing is an expensive sport, even in go-karts, uh, where most of these guys started. Uh, and they are they are all guys. Uh, there have been a handful of women over the sport's entire history, but currently uh, there are none in the sport. Uh, or at least drivers. There are many on on uh, teams as mechanics. And um, principals. Well, not currently, I guess. Right. Um, but yeah, racing's expensive, so what you tend to see a lot is is a lot of silver spoons. Uh, Hamilton's parents, by contrast, had to work multiple jobs to support his racing career, and his dad served as his race mechanic for a long time. Uh, he's also very socially conscious, Hamilton is, and uh, generally a pretty humble guy. Last year, he placed second in the Drivers' Championship. His teammate, he's also a fan favorite, George Russell, is 24, and this is his first season with Mercedes. Last year, he raced with a much smaller team with a slower car, so he placed 15th in the Drivers' Championship. Uh, he actually filled in for Hamilton at Mercedes once in 2020 when Hamilton got COVID uh, and did a tremendous job until his team <laughs> screwed up the pit oh. stop. It was excruciating. Uh, so there are a lot of people who would like to see him do well. Uh, and he's got the chops to do it. Uh, George Russell has out-qualified his teammate uh, back at his old team every time, but I think only one or two times in three years. Uh, and before F1, he won back-to-back -back championships in Formula 2 and Formula 3. And that is Mercedes. All right, on to Red Bull. Uh, so, Red Bull had the winning driver last year, but because... Their two combined drivers um, did not win the constructors. We're talking about them second. Uh, Red Bull uh, were sort of a, you know, Mercedes have been the dominant team for most of the past decade. But before that, um, Red Bull were uh, equally as dominant uh, under uh, a tenure of Sebastian Vettel and um, his teammate for much of that, Mark Webber. Um, however, in, until last year, they were had sort of like... Um, been second fiddle for a number of years uh, they their livery their car color is dark blue but it is mostly recognizable because of the huge red bull on the side of it kind of looks like a driving uh, soda can um, if you don't know red bull is a energy drink um, where have you been <laughs> for the past uh, 20 years of society uh, it is everywhere in every extreme sport and everyone is no different um, this team is based in Austria. They actually own their own uh, race course as well, uh, Circuit, which we'll, we'll be driving on later on this year. Um, they are, of course, though, based in the UK, like most of these teams. Their team principal is Christian Horner, who, if you have watched Drive to Survive, you will be very um, uh, familiar with uh, him and his wife, Jerry Halliwell, also known as Ginger Spice in a previous life. Um, they live in a beautiful English cottage uh, and all of their beautiful children um, love all of their drivers. Last year, they placed second uh, under the stewardship of Max Verstappen and Sergio Perez, which is an interesting combination of drivers. Uh, Verstappen won the championship last year, uh, as Drew said in the sort of 
dying moments of the season, as it were. Uh, he is essentially the sort of sports prodigy for the past uh, five years. His father was a uh, F1 driver before him, which is not an uncommon story uh, with some of these uh, drivers. Worryingly uh, common, one could say, when we talk about the pipeline <laughs> in the F1. True. Yeah, for sure. It happens a little bit more in F3 and F2. That's a, Not all of them make it up here, but... Uh, yeah, it's definitely, you know, it rings true with what Drew was talking about earlier about silver spoons and, and access and stuff like that. Um, Max Verstappen is Dutch. He is from the Netherlands. You will see a lot of incredible orange fans in the crowds uh, the closer we are to the, the Netherlands. And uh, they're very loud and uh, very supportive of him. Um like I said, he, he as a figure, he sort of cuts. Uh, he he can be a little bit divisive. He's fairly straight laced, uh, very uh, cocksure and confident young man. Like I said, prodigy uh, energy coming off him. I think we might see a different version of him this year because he has that sort of difficult first championship under his belt now, um, which um, eludes some drivers longer to, than others. Um, Sorry, Rob. Well, they also just gave him like a max value contract, basically, right? He like did. he is now. Like, so he got. Uh, sorry, that's a term I'm borrowing from like NBA or NFL, where there's like <laughs> salary caps, and this doesn't even really apply in F1. But like he is, I think right now the highest paid driver in F1, or at least on equal terms to Hamilton. Uh, so they committed to him long term. Uh, this is like Red Bull's convinced this guy is the franchise, and they gave yeah. him a franchise deal. Uh, that and you it's, don't see it's, that often in F1. It's a safe bet. Aside from Hamilton, he has been the most, let's say, consistent of the good drivers. There's a lot of drivers who have won races over the years, but Max has, has always been sort of um, uh, consistent season on season. And, and crucially, race. consistent at Red Bull, where they've like struggled to find yeah. drivers who can turn it on year in, year out. So, like, yeah, you can see why they put that bet down. Yeah, and, and to that point, Sergio Perez, his teammate... It is sort of the latest in in a in a bit of a um you know rotating door of of drivers who have come in. They have they have bet their their house on young drivers. Max Verstappen being one of them. And when it came to his teammates, they also sort of went in that direction, tried to bring in these younger drivers to fill that second seat. But whether or not it was because of how the car was set up or because of the pressure, um, all of them one by one have some for, sort of fallen by the wayside we'll be hearing about some of them um in different teams as we make our way through this uh, so they essentially out of a sort of a situation of necessity um adopted to take on Sergio Perez last year who was at risk of losing his seat um uh, and losing his drive in F1 despite the fact that he is uh, the opposite of Verstappen quite a journeyman of the sport been in multiple um uh, teams over the years and has always sort of gotten Maybe more out of the cars than he was uh, driving than than they sort of should have gotten there. Certainly more than his teammates most of the time. Uh, Perez put in a good uh, r- race last year. I think he had a stronger first half to the season than second. He ended up placing fourth, um, but he did his job kind of. They didn't get the constructors championships, but um, certainly a better <clears throat> first uh, uh, you know st- first season with Red Bull than most of his other contemporaries. Uh, and that brings us to Ferrari. Uh, so Ferrari is 
probably the iconic team of Formula One. Uh, I think they occupy a place maybe similar to what the New York Yankees uh, like occupy in terms of baseball. And also like the Yankees, there's a lot of like silverware in the team headquarters. They can talk about like championships won, etc. It's been a minute since the team has been uh, dominant or relevant in that way. In a lot of ways, this is a team still defined uh, by the uh, like dynasty they developed over the course of the career of Michael Schumacher and his time uh, with Ferrari. Uh, things have been more challenging for the uh, for the team in recent years. They are, of course. Uh, you know, in addition to like maybe the most famous sports car manufacturer in the world, uh, the F1 team is the sort of other pride of the Italian manufacturer. Uh, they are based in Marinello, not a huge uh, town in Italy. And I think that's also part of uh, Ferrari's character. Uh, a lot of a lot of teams are based in like a corridor of english f1 industrial know-how uh ferrari from beginning to end has always been a slightly parochial company sort of outside the mainstream of the automotive industry and sort of the world comes to marinello uh and you know that that is that stems from maybe the legacy of their founder uh enzo ferrari who sort of a notoriously domineering figure and has really kind of, again, set some templates uh, for the team for, for better and worse. But the Ferrari has a reputation for uh, being iconic and also a little bit haughty. Uh, until maybe recently, its fans always seem to be the most numerous at all uh, F1 events. Uh, Ferrari fans are called Tifosi. And uh, until the results became too shameful to go on, uh, you used to see just like seas of red uh, at every F1 race. That has kind of uh, let off in recent years. To try and right the ship, uh, they are currently led by uh, Mattia Bonato. Uh, Ferrari had some pretty major succession crises break out in the last <laughs> two years. Um, and... Uh, the untimely death of a chairman of Ferrari um, sort of prevented them from putting in the leadership team they they wanted to. Uh, so Mattia Bonato is interesting because he is sort of a um, soft-spoken engineer and a real change of pace for Ferrari. Um, for one thing, he talks like a fairly normal person in interviews and doesn't give like monstrous quotes, uh, which is, which is kind of striking for, uh, for any team principal, but especially for a Ferrari. Uh, last year they placed third in the championship, but they're also undergoing a two year drought in terms of race wins, uh, which is uh, in some ways that is as bad as it's ever been for the team. But you also like have to say, they didn't win races last year, but again, third in the championship, they were consistently in the mix near the front. That is way better uh, than where they were a few years ago. Uh, their drivers are Carlos Sainz, a, uh, a very good Spanish driver um, who amassed some uh, championships in lower formula. formula. Uh, has not had the same opportunities uh, in in Formula One, uh, but has made the most of them. He sort of uh, really stood out as a bright spot in the McLaren team when he arrived uh, and has shown some real poise for Ferrari. Ferrari 
also sort of made a generational bet on their other driver, uh, Charles Leclerc, who is a uh, Monegast driver, um, which is very funny. The Principality of Monaco, this tiny little countrylet uh, in Europe slash tax haven slash just, open it's, air it's casino. F- it's full of F1 drivers. I don't know what happened over there, but yeah. It's yeah, just, it's just breeding them. If you want a little taste of Monaco life, uh, check out Nico Rosberg's uh, YouTube channel. Um, you will you will get what the vibe is real quick. Uh, but Char- like Ferrari gave Charles Leclerc a unusually long term contract for a young driver. Uh, it was clear they're sort of uh, building the future around him. He did win uh, multiple races uh, in his first season with the team. Um, now they are sort of back to being a bit more agnostic about who their principal driver is, um, because honestly, there's not a lot to choose between him and signs. They both seem to be very, very good drivers, uh, and they've not been a high performing enough team to sort of see what really happens when that kind of pressure is on. Uh, so I think like Ferrari has felt like a team on the rise. Uh, we will see in this new, uh, technical regulations framework, whether the uh, new car, the F-175, can continue the forward progress or whether, and this is always possible, whether you see Ferrari kind of go tumbling back down the order uh, as new regulations do to them now what the switch to the turbo hybrids uh, did to them a number of years ago. Mm. All right, onward we move to McLaren, which is kind of, it is one of those car brands that does exist outside of F1, but is sort of like a prestige type brand. Um, if you know motorsport, you know McLaren, um, you know, you probably know the story of McLaren, Bruce McLaren, and they've been around since the 60s, and they've had some great drivers, you know, over the course of their history, Emerson Fittipaldi, um, you know, Alain Prost, uh, Nicky Lauda, uh, Ayrton Senna, of course, they are a, a well-respected team within uh, the, the story of F1, um, but have had a fantastically turbulent um, a decade or so, really bottom to the middle, <laughs> which, is, which is turbulent in, in F1 terms. Um, and last year was the strongest year they've had in a while that the battle with ferrari went down to the end and they sort of came up on top of that middle pack um their car is very easy to spot it's orange or papaya i think is the 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 color they like to refer to it as um they have a mercedes engine in there they are based in the uk they are a british team um, the team principal at the moment has been with him since 2019, Andreas Seidel, uh, although uh, he is a, a German, although the American uh, CEO, Zach Brown, will also be sort of advocating for the team and doing a lot of interviews. Um, he is uh, somewhat responsible, certainly instrumental in, in a large part of the turnaround um, that they've had over the past couple of years. Uh, McLaren have churned drivers a lot over the, the those years too. Um, they stuck on to some of them for a while. They had trouble with their second driver spot. Uh, drive, drivers kept leaving because they just weren't really accumulating uh, the points or race victories or anything like that, not even podiums. Uh, but as it happened last year, both of their drivers had multiple podiums and, and drove well. Um, it's an interesting combination, the two of them, trying to figure out which one of these is the quote-unquote number one 
driver uh, perplex us last year and I think maybe this year we have our answer. Uh, Lando Norris is the younger of the two drivers. He is British, he's from the UK, he's English I think. Um, He placed sixth last year. He did not get a race victory, he almost did. He lost it in soul-crushing rain in in a track that we will never go back to again, which I'm very excited about. The only good Uh, race it's ever seen. Exactly. True. What a what a way to send it off, I guess. But it ultimately, didn't have the ending. I think most people wanted. Um, but in spite of that, Lando did have far more podiums than his uh, contemporary. He came third three times and got a uh, came second once, and the rest of his um, uh, races, lots of fourths and fifths. So he did very well and ended up being quite far ahead of his uh, of his teammate. Um, I think he was like almost, he was 45 points ahead of Ricardo. Uh, Norris is younger. He's another one of these sort of, um, you know, young prodigies. He's been in the sport for a number of years now and he's still quite young. He's in his early 20s. Um, but he cuts a less assured figure than Max Verstappen. I think he is thought of more... Um, with more, you know, a little bit more doubt, perhaps with with him. Uh, although over the past couple of years, he has really shown himself to be assured um, uh, driver. Last year, he definitely sort of like he 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 sort of was the meme lord of the twenty twenty race from home uh, season. We we had, uh, you know, big on Twitch. He's he's a young guy. He's he's great at social media. He has a YouTube channel. He, um, he's very like down to earth with people, friends with other YouTubers and stuff like that. Um, but last year we saw a slightly more serious side to him, and ultimately we saw his best season yet. So it'll be interesting to see how he uh, how he comes out this year. Uh, his teammate Daniel Ricciardo uh, was at Red Bull during many of those, you know, always the bridesmaid, never the bride years. Um, he had an interesting battle with Max, Ver- uh, sorry, with uh, Sebastian Vettel, who you'll hear later on uh, from, um, and Verstappen as well. Actually, I should say um, he is Australian. He likes to do shoeies, which is when you get on the podium and you drink beer out of a shoe, a used shoe, one that you've been sweating in in an F1 car for numerous hours. Uh, he is also a very um, sort of likable, you know, out there guy. He, you know, enjoys doing interviews. He wears costumes, puts on accents. He's he's a, a pretty chill. Um, he likes to enjoy his F1 life, shall we say. Um Last year he placed eighth. He did have a race win, uh, McLaren's first in a long while and only of last season. Uh, but ultimately his racing was um, much more inconsistent than the Norris's. It took him a while to get his feet under himself in terms of the car as well. Sometimes drivers have that problem when they have a new car. Everyone's going to have that problem this year because they're all new cars. Um so it's going to be an interesting battle to see how the two of them do, because really at this stage, Ricardo will want to be doing better than Lando Norris. But Lando had a fantastic season last year and must be in driver one's seat. If he's not, he's probably not happy about it. So we'll see how McLaren do. They could be a shocker this year, but as I said, they like to go up and down. So the path down is easier in F1 usually than the path up. Yeah, and and just to be clear, the the driver one, driver two nomenclature teams will tell you that they don't have a primary driver. <laughs> um, whether you believe that, uh, it's up to you. Um, but yeah, next up is Alpine, which, uh, as I mentioned previously, is the racing brand for the French car manufacturer Renault. Uh, the team's actually owned partially by the French government, uh, though again. The team base is in the UK. Uh, their team principal <laughs> is an American 
named Odmar Safnauer. Typical American name. <laughs> I know. Uh, his family is, I believe, Romanian. He, I think he speaks Romanian. There's an interview with him uh, where he speaks Romanian. It's kind of cool. Um, over the past six years, uh, Odmar is uh, new to the team. And over the past six years, Alpine has been kind of erratic in terms of performance. Uh, but Safnauer is known for being able to do a lot with a little. Uh, so we'll see how it goes this year, I guess. Uh, their car is blue and pink. And they've got some talented drivers working for them. That is for sure. First up is the 40-year-old Fernando Alonso, the elder statesman of the sport. Uh, he's a two-time F1 champion from Spain and a driver that many consider to be the best on the grid in terms of talent. However, he doesn't always make it into the fastest cars, some say because he's difficult to work with. Uh, but most recently, he had such a tumultuous time at McLaren that he left F1 for two years. Uh, but he's back and last year placed 10th in the Drivers' Championship. Uh, his teammate is a 25-year-old Frenchman named Esteban Ocon, who has also had a rocky time in F1. He, uh, in 2018, was racing for a team that got bought by a billionaire whose son just so happened to be an aspiring F1 driver. So Ocon got the boot and the son got his spot. Uh, how, thankfully, how did that end? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I guess I guess we'll get to it. Uh, but thankfully for Ocon, Toto Wolf of Mercedes uh, liked the cut of his jib and kept him around for a year uh, as a Mercedes reserve driver until Renault picked him up in 2020. Uh, Ocon is also from humble beginnings. Uh, some Drive to Survive viewers may recall that his family sold their business and moved into a motorhome to support his racing career, uh, driving all around Europe, following him to his karting events. Uh, last year, he placed 11th in the Drivers' Championship, one place behind his teammate. And that is Alpine. And next we have Alpha Tauri, which I believe is the correct, in quotes, pronunciation. <laughs> and, uh, and sort of verbosity. You have to say it that way. Alpha Tauri. Exactly. They are Italian. Uh, they are, their base is also in Italy, surprisingly. Um, Franz Tost is uh, their team principal. And you may, able, you may be able to tell from the logo embedded in their dark blue and white paint job that they are actually sort of a sister team to Red Bull. Um, they use Red Bull engines. The teams aren't allowed to share data or anything uh, under the rules, but they are owned. The two teams, Red Bull and AlphaTauri, are owned by the same people. AlphaTauri, by the way, is Red Bull's um, clothing brand. And it yeah. is maybe some of the most boring clothing I've ever seen. <laughs> Stop trying to make AlphaTauri a thing. My, uh, it, it used to have a much cooler name, right? Of Toro Rosso, which Scuderia was Scuderia Toro Rosso. God, damn. which Italian yeah. for Red Bull? How good is that? Yeah, uh, but historically, this team has sort of been used as a farm team for Red Bull. That's where they, you know, they take their junior drivers from Formula Two or whatever. Uh, you know, have them around in this team for one or two years and then bring them up to the big team in Red Bull. Case in <laughs> and, point. And then bring them back down again. <laughs> yeah, so 26-year-old French driver Pierre Gasly. Uh, he got bumped up to Red Bull after a little over one year in F1, but due to uh, inexperience and because his teammate was Max Verstappen, who is very good, uh, Red Bull demoted Gasly halfway through the season, something that as Danny mentioned, they have a habit of doing. Uh, since then, however, Pierre Gasly has been on a tear, way outperforming his teammates and scoring a podium twice 
Again, this is what we're talking about. This is sort of, we're, we're way down in the field here and Gasly got on the podium. Uh, and one of those podiums was a win. Mm. Uh, last year, he placed ninth in the Drivers' Championship. Um, and I, I just like him uh, more and more the more I watch him. Uh, his teammate is 21-year-old Yuki Tsunoda of Japan. Uh, despite coming in third in Formula 2 in 2020, Yuki has struggled a little so far in Formula 1. Um, he came 14th in the Drivers' Championship last year. Uh, many people have a soft spot for him, though. He's particularly colorful over the radio. And when asked his favorite thing about F1, he responded, the food. <laughs> He would apparently hang out a lot by the Honda Hospitality Suite uh, yeah. because they made the best Japanese food. Uh, he's also the smallest driver on the grid at five foot two inches, and I believe is the youngest. Uh, and that is Alpha Tauri. Next up, we've got Aston Martin uh, and where to begin. Uh, so, uh, I guess simply put, Aston Martin is. Uh, kind of a new organization in some ways it is built on the foundations of a very old uh f1 team that has like changed hand multiple times uh most recently uh sort of the the new refounding of this of this era happened under a was organized under a team called force india uh that got a reputation for punching above its weight Force India, uh, its financial backers, went into administration. Uh, they raced for a couple of years as Racing Point, uh, which is sort of a placeholder deal. But the the real like uh, rescue for this organization came in the form of Lawrence Stroll. Uh, as, as Drew sort of alluded to, the, the deal that went down uh, around Esteban Ocon uh, being sort of punted out of F1, uh, that was in, in some ways due to the influence of Lawrence Stroll. Lawrence Stroll is a uh, sort of billionaire investor, uh, but also like has a reputation for being a bit of a turnaround uh, artist, um, which I think is a polite way of saying he buys distressed assets and runs them. Um, <laughs> but that is what he is elected to do here with the former Racing Point organization. And so he brought it under the Aston Martin brand. Uh, they are now, they're, they're running as Aston Martin. Uh, and they are, I think, kind of in the process of moving on from those foundations I laid out, they are investing in all new facilities, uh, new personnel, really breaking, uh, like breaking with this past that goes all the way back to uh, some truly antique uh, F1 orgs. Does this go back to BAR? Uh, I think I want to say it goes back to a very old British American uh, racing team uh, from years, years and years ago. Um, however. There has been a little bit of drama around that. Uh, Lauren Stroll uh, has, if you watch Drive to Survive, um, seems like a, a guy who really does like being hands-on and maybe being the big wheel in the room. Uh, for whatever reason, in his process of sort of reorganizing the team uh, as he sees fit, uh, the longtime team principal at Force India... Uh, Atmar Safnauer left abruptly to go over to Alpine. And that left uh, Aston Martin with a bit of a problem. They have filled it. They filled the team principal position uh, with 
a guy named Mike Crack, who has sort of long time, uh, a long time background in motorsports and being a race engineer. Uh, he actually worked with one of the drivers, Sebastian Vettel, uh, a number of years ago when when uh, Vettel was was coming up through the ranks of open wheel racing. But it does feel like an unsettled organization. Um, you'll be able to identify the car on the track because they are running. I wouldn't so. To my great displeasure, they're not running like a classic British racing green. Uh, they're not running like that Lotus green. They're running like kind of a iridescent uh, green take mm. on like an uh, like traditional like British racing colors. Um, so you'll be able to sort of pick them up that way. Last year they finished seventh in the uh, in, in the constructors championship. I would say it looked like a disappointing campaign. Uh, I think Force India had always looked for for so long like a team that was capable of rising above. Uh, it's circumstances that it was kind of shocking to see uh, how honestly like pedestrian they were, uh, even with the support of this new backer. So their driver situation is also interesting. Um, the most important driver at this team is Lance Stroll. Uh, that is the boss's son. Uh, he is not a bad driver, but we're still we we are still yet I think to see that spark that indicates that he's going to be a particularly good F1 driver. That being said, it's not like he's been in so many great cars that like there's been a ton of chances to demonstrate that. Uh, but Lance Stroll is sort of, um, you know, he's what they call pay driver. Uh, there have been some very good pay drivers uh, in the past, but he is, he is in the sport because his dad brings a lot of money with him. Uh, and that has enabled uh, Lance to, have seats in F1 that he probably would not have been able to get otherwise. That being said, seems like a nice kid. Like the mm. the more the more you see of Lance Stroll, um, you know he does not seem like a spoiled shithead. Uh, so uh, fair play, to, fair play to Lance. Uh, <laughs> wishing the best for you, buddy. Uh, the other driver at Aston Martin is Sebastian Vettel. Sebastian Vettel was the driver for Red Bull for a number of years uh, and sort of headed up a little, a dynasty uh, they had there as well, winning multiple world championships. He left Red Bull to go uh, drive for Ferrari and that sucked. It didn't go well. Uh, his form fell off. He, I mind, mind you, these were bad years for Ferrari, but even when they were shockingly good, possibly due to some cheating. See previous seasons of Shift F1. <laughs> uh, Vettel did not seem like he had uh, the same command that he did during his Red Bull era. And so at Aston Martin, he is in a bit of a place where he is getting, you know, he's, he's, he's aging. Um, he's, he, I think his life is less centered on motorsports. So he's sort of at a transitional point. It's very, a lot is riding on this season, both in terms of like what sort of form he can demonstrate and also whether or not Aston Martin looks like a team that is going to be worth sticking around for. Mike Crack gave an interview, uh, like just a week or so ago talking to this very point of, it's not like Seb needs to be in F1. Uh, mm. And the form of the team lately has not been such that you might stick around. So uh, that's kind of the, those, those are kind of the stakes over at Aston Martin. Uh, their, their car this year is the AMR 22. And uh, it's going to be a real test of the new organization um, that has sort of supplanted uh, the deep rooted one uh, that, that Lawrence Stroll bought. Hmm. 
All right, I'm up with Williams. We're into the bottom three now. Yes, bottom three. Um, Yeah, they basically, they came eighth last year, almost off the back of a sort of a freebie podium. But we'll get to that in a second. Williams have have had a tough time of late. Uh, They are another classic Formula One brand and team, largely dominant in the late 80s, early 90s. Drivers like Nelson Piquet, Nigel Mansell, Keke Rosberg won a championship with them. They have nine constructor championships, I believe, and and seven driver championships. Basically, during that tenure, they are uh, super British. They're based in the UK. They have a Mercedes engine, and currently they are owned by a sort of an investment group, Darlton Capital, who bought the team from the Williams family. So for most of the time, it was headed up by uh, Sir Frank Williams, um, who another sort of like uh, you know. Oh, like God of the F1 world. Um, his daughter, Claire, ran the team as team principal. Um, but that whole story sort of came to an end in 2019. We should also just promote here, hey, support us on Patreon. Uh, you can hear <laughs> us talk about various documentaries that center on these issues. Like we just did one on sort of the tumultuous recent history of McLaren. But as we're talking about the Williams team, uh, there's two things you should know. One is there's an all-time motorsports documentary uh, on Netflix <laughs> about the Williams family. Uh, that I don't know if it's still on Netflix, but it's, it's worth looking up. And two, we discussed that movie uh, on our Patreon episodes. But like, if you want to know like what's Williams' whole deal, check it out because it's a compelling story. Yeah, there's a lot there. Um, although, you know, and I will say, like, even now, there's there's not much in terms of the the connective tissue between those two eras. We've lost one of the drivers that was there during that time, and a lot of the backroom staff have uh, have changed too. Uh, their team principal is Just Capito. Um, like I said, they became they came eighth last year, largely off the back of George Russell getting gimme second place because there was a weirdly cancelled race. Um, in Belgium last year, where they all got full points, even though they didn't really race one lap. They sort of just drove around in the rain for a couple of laps. Um, so it was great for him to get a podium. It was great for the team. Um, but that essentially gave them, I think they had a 10-point spread on the next team. Uh, so that driver who I just referred to there, um, Drew has already talked about him. He's at Mercedes now. Uh, the two drivers they have at Williams are, well, first, Nicholas Latifi. Um, Nicholas Latifi sort of all second fiddle in a in a team that's near the bottom um he's the type of driver who wouldn't be surprised if we didn't see him uh although williams has underperformed so poorly over the past couple of years that it's hard to find a driver who would want to step in there necessarily uh latifi has sort of like um consistently underperformed uh in relation to his then teammate, uh, George Russell, who again is another one of these sort of stars of the sport, up and coming prodigy. Um, he placed 17th last year. He had a couple of decent, uh, he got some top 10 finishes, which is great, um, which were slim pickings in previous years. Uh, very cheery guy, sort of the golden retriever of the of the driver lineup. <laughs> very, uh, very enthusiastic, uh, but maybe a little bit dead behind the eyes. I like Nicholas Latifi a lot, um, but he's been perhaps not the most charismatic uh, of drivers in the field. Uh, his teammate, on the other hand, comes with a lot of narrative baggage. Alexander Albon. You want to talk about someone who'd bite the hand off of you to get a seat in an F1 car? Alex Albon is definitely that. He was one of the unfortunate 
uh, recipients of the second driver's seat at Red Bull during Max Verstappen's uh, reign of terror. Um, Alex was sort of thrown into that team uh, maybe a little bit too early. He never broke into the top five in the two seasons that he was, uh, sorry, I should say in the final of the two seasons um, uh, that he was there. He was sixth one year and seventh the other, I believe. Um and he basically lost his seat, sort of like Gasly did as well. We were talking about earlier. Yeah, and in fact, he replaced Gasly when Gasly got he kicked did. back down. So it's just like a back-to-back, like, geez, Red Bull is really chewing through these guys. Yeah, for sure. Uh, he maybe, I think, has gotten some very well-earned respite from the sport. He has been a sort of a test driver for uh red bull last year um but uh he wasn't racing he did a little bit of he was in some italian supercar thing last year as well did some of that um he's another one of these guys who did well in gp3 and gp2 uh sort of hustled his way through the sport i'm not sure if he's from meager means but definitely his 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 sort of career was was tough because it was he was a young driver um you know he's he's he his family is from Thailand. He uh, holds dual citizenship with Thailand and the UK, but he flies under the Thai flag. Super underrepresented part of the world, um, especially given the uh, population there. Um, and and he's he's a very amicable guy. Like he he has the sort of energy of you know somebody who has you know doesn't take it for granted that they're in F one. Who is like hustled. He is he's definitely vulnerable. He, you know, he doesn't like, he's not brimming with confidence, um, but he has got a lot of talent. And I think outside of some unfortunate collisions with Lewis Hamilton over the years, he might have had a better end of season at Red Bull. Um, he's got a lot to prove in many ways coming back, but in also in other ways, he could be stuck in a lemon again. We don't know how these cars are going to end up, but Williams has historically at least in recent history, uh, struggled quite poorly. So we'll have to see how the two of them do. But I suspect Albon will be out-qualifying Nicholas Latifi fairly handily. Curse of the commentator. In keeping that vein of, like, I have no guidance to offer in terms of expectations, we come to Alfa Romeo. (laughs) Uh, So Alfa Romeo, um, they are... A Swiss team. They used to the the organization has its roots in uh, a F one team called uh, Sauber. Uh, it was run by Peter Sauber. I would say the long suffering uh, Sauber F one team. <laughs> um, never in its previous life, never achieved a lot of success. Alfa Romeo sort of moved in and uh, moved from a partnership deal to taking on the entire team. Uh, so they are they are based out of Switzerland. Uh, they, their team print principal is uh, Frederick Vasseur, and they are identifiable on track, uh, running a red and white livery. Uh, its most distinctive features this season are a big, playful, cursive Alfa Romeo scrawl. Uh, on the uh, on the fuselage uh, and a stylized depiction of their um, like almost medieval coat of arms uh, like badge uh, that that sits on the car. Um, they sucked last year. <laughs> like I mean that like uh, that like they uh, I think they were they were a team that was sort of looking to take a take a jump in the last couple of years. Uh, instead, they took a dump. 
Uh, they ended up ninth in the championship. Uh, they Six. got rid of their drivers. Um, and so now they are starting fresh with <laughs> nothing says fresh like Valtteri Botas, yeah. uh, who I do like was a was a good, solid, reliable number two driver at Mercedes, but also I think maybe unjustly gets held a little bit in contempt for not being able to compete effectively with Hamilton uh, in a Mercedes after repeated chances uh, to do so. Um, sometimes does not seem like the most dynamic personality or, or what dynamism there is, is mostly like insecurity that is alarming. Uh, but, uh, he is now with the Alfa Romeo team. And as sort of Vasuris pointed out, it's his chance to show what he's capable of doing outside Hamilton's, uh, shadow, which to be clear is a big question, uh, because mm. he was a very hot property when he drove for Williams, uh, a number of years ago. Um, really seemed like a guy who was ready to make his mark on the sport and then uh, didn't thrive at Mercedes, though, again, he understood the assignment and did it well. Uh, he is paired with a rookie uh, Chinese driver, Guan Yu Zhou. And uh, that's also just a big question mark. Rookies always are. Uh, Zhou has a, a decent but not amazing track record in open wheel racing that being said he is instantly going to be one of those popular drivers in the sport uh because he is a chinese driver the first one uh to make it to this tier yeah and so is sort of by default uh going to be the national motorsports uh hero of of china um what this translates to in terms of performance no idea uh they the alfa romeo uh, sources its engines from Ferrari. Ferrari finally seemed to be pulling themselves out of the uh, wilderness when it comes to engines. But nothing about that team uh, sort of gave you confidence uh, in the last year. Anything could happen with this team. Like if they went up two or three places in the finishing order, wouldn't be surprised. Uh, if they went into the cellar, I'd be like, yep, that tracks. Speaking of the cellar, mm. we finally have our 10th place team, Haas. Boy, oh Haas boy. is, shall we say, noteworthy for a number of reasons. Uh, for one, they were a brand new team when they joined in 2016, rather than what usually happens, which is, you know, a company just buys an existing team. Um, they also had a unique business model in F1, which was buying as many parts as they legally could from other teams to keep the cost down and only machining themselves what they needed. They are owned by Gene Haas, who owns a NASCAR team and runs a company that makes manufacturing robots. So you would think they've got the manufacturing thing down. Yeah, exactly. When he's holding out on his own team, like, yeah, we're not no. going to fab tools. You work for the tool maker. Right. <laughs> we're going to buy all our stuff. Uh, they buy their engine from Ferrari and a lot of other parts, too. And initially did quite well, finishing fifth in the Constructors' Championship in 2018. The rest of the time, they haven't climbed higher than eighth. And last year came dead last with a whopping zero points. Mm. Uh, their team principal is the potty-mouthed Gunther Steiner, who you may know if you've seen virtually any episode of Drive to Survive. Uh, but their biggest transgression, in my view, was selling a large stake in the team to a Russian oligarch named Dmitry Mazepin, who, you guessed it, installed his son Nikita in as at the team as a driver. 
Uh, I honestly don't want to go into all the ways Nikita Mazepin was rightfully one of the most hated drivers in F1 before he even got in the car, uh, because guess what? It doesn't matter. Due to the situation in Ukraine and a whole bunch of sanctions, the Mazepins are now completely out of Formula One. Wild. Uh, As of this recording, we don't actually know who is going to be taking his spot, Um but my guess is, at least for the first couple races, it will be the Haas reserve driver, Pietro Fittipaldi. Uh, if you saw the last few races of the 2020 F1 season or caught that part in Drive to Survive, you may recall Pietro as the one who filled in after Roman Grosjean's fiery crash at the 2020 Sakhir Grand Prix. Uh, Pietro is the 25-year-old grandson of two-time F1 champion and accomplished IndyCar driver Emerson Fittipaldi of Brazil. Pietro has also raced in the IndyCar series, DTM, and a handful of endurance races, which frankly isn't a whole lot of experience. So while he could end up racing for the whole year at Haas, uh, what might happen is that he fills in just for these first few races and then Haas signs a more experienced driver. The rumors currently are um, uh, Antonio Giovinazzi, who Mm. just lost his Alfa Romeo seat, and uh, Nico Hulkenberg, who uh, has been out of F1 for a few years. Wow. Um, I actually, I don't, my my guess here is that uh, it's not Hulkenberg. As he he I think he was offered something a few years ago, and he was like, "Nah, it's not enough money." Um, <laughs> and I he, I don't I just don't think he would want to race for Haas. But who knows? A year could change things. So hold on, like in Haas's defense, there's key context about last year. Gunther Steiner made the calculation that he had no idea how to fix what the okay. This doesn't sound good for Gunther, but he like I get where he's coming from. He had no idea how to fix the concept of the car they rolled out a couple years ago. He knew yeah. the regulations were coming, and so they just like folded up shop for a season and invested mm. nothing in their car. So it's like true. they fielded the most garbage car, uh, like that's ever been like put out in F one pretty much, uh, under the theory. That they could get it right this year. Maybe they got it right this year. It could work out. Maybe Nico Hulkenberg, like, this is his ship. He never got the, the he never got the contending ride he wanted. But maybe Haas has an interesting little pitch. Uh this, this is the, the the Jensen Button Braun year, is it? Yeah. Yes, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Everyone thinks that we're up shit creek, but really, uh, we're ready to take the F1 world by storm. Well, they might still be in the creek because apparently their freight won't arrive in time to start testing next week or that is that's what it's currently looking like so uh the woes the woes continue for Haas and if you've listened to the show before uh you know that we are highly skilled at recording episodes just before crucial news breaks <laughs> so true to form haas has said that they will be making an announcement about their driver lineup the day after we record this awesome uh so check shift f1 at shift f1 podcast on twitter for the retweets but regardless of who replaces mazepin the other driver is a lock his name is mick schumacher he is 22 years old and if his name sounds familiar you may have heard of his father michael schumacher who won seven F1 championships from 1994 to 2004 and retired in 2012. Uh, Tragically, Michael suffered a brain injury in a 2013 skiing accident and has been out of the public eye since, but that hasn't stopped Mick from following in his father's footsteps and regularly remarking that his dad is his hero and role model, which just gets me every time. Uh, Mick, like his German countryman Sebastian Vettel, is also very socially conscious and is just generally an incredibly nice guy, it seems. 
Uh, and he can also drive. He won championships in both Formula 2 and Formula 3. Yeah, the uh, interesting situation of arguably having the face and heel of F1 on the same team <laughs> last year. And they actually kind of got, got on, at least. There was that. But uh, yeah, I hope for Mick's case, Haas is doing a little bit, a little bit better this year. Yeah. Uh, I should also point out that Nikita Mazepin last year in the Drivers' Championship placed 21st in a 20-driver championship. <laughs> I forgot I, about that. I will yeah. say this, though. Oh, like boy. I have no love oh, for Mazepin. Boy. I think the uh, dilemma Russian athletes in general find themselves in, though, right now, sucks. Mm. Like that That's the other thing, is the, the, the degree to which like a lot of people have nothing to do with like the decision to invade another country. I've just been sort of caught in the middle of this and like swept up in this. Like Mazepin, nobody's sorry to see him hit the door, like see the door hit him on the way out. Uh, but just in general, in the world of sport, uh, it's it's one of those things that uh, can feel very unjust in terms yeah, of like he, how it is he, affecting people. He will definitely suffer the least and deserves it the most. I, but certainly based on the on track performances, he never, you know, the car was tough, but like, he never looked like he was in the running at all. And Last year, yeah. there was a website that just tracked how many times he spun the car. Yeah. In a way, it was like it was a freebie for the rest of the field because he was fairly aggressive in other years in, in previous uh, formulas. So, you know, weird. What a weird year it's already been. Yeah, indeed. Um, all right. Them's the teams and drivers. Let's talk about the actual cars, shall mm. we, Rob? What can you tell us? How many wheels are we talking about here? <laughs> uh, well, new this season, uh, we went to six. Uh, oh, sweet. Now. Back again. <laughs> Excellent. Can't uh, wait. By the way, that's happened. Uh, it look happened. it up. There's been some <laughs> wild concept. Also, look up fan car uh, yeah. if, you're, if you're just like not, if, if you're bored. Uh, so, uh, at the heart of a modern F1 car is a V6 turbo hybrid engine. Uh, so these are enormously sophisticated and fussy pieces of equipment. Uh, they were sort of controversial when they came in, uh, in part because they supplanted, uh, like normally, uh, aspirated, uh, V8s, I want, I want to say, but the thing people loved about old F1 engines is they're big, they're noisy, they're loud. Um, and a lot of people have felt the slightly more restrained and uh, highly electric sounding, electrified uh, sound of a modern F1 car is, is somewhat lacking. What isn't lacking is horsepower. The engines are enormously powerful, but uh, also for a number of years, Mercedes was the only team that really knew how to build a good one. Uh, and they sort of rode that to multiple championships because the nature of the turbo hybrid is that it's actually... You, you often hear it not described as an engine, but a power unit, because the engine part is the ICE, the internal combustion engine, and then it has two other systems, uh, the MGUK, uh, which is a kinetic energy recovery system, and the MGUH, which is a heat recovery system. Uh, it re recovers like waste energy from both these uh, phenomena and sort of uses those to power up a battery, which then provides an electric assist uh, to the motor. Uh, most useful, I think, at like lower, uh, at like at like uh, lower speeds, like as as it comes as it comes up to speed um, on like exit. But uh, the, the engines don't really work without both these things uh, working sort of in harmony. The MGUH, I think, is pretty much marked for death. 
um, in part because uh, in F1 in general, there is a concern that the tech that powers F1 is increasingly not representative of what the auto industry needs right now. Hybrid uh, cars are already on the way out, probably in favor of electric, um, despite having not been nearly widely adopted enough. Um, but nevertheless, uh, as you're moving to an electric, uh, an all electric future, uh, heat recovery is not where the auto industry is is making gains. Kinetic energy recovery recovery is, and the the heat recovery system has always been the part of the car the teams have struggled with. So everyone hates it. It's probably marked for death. Um, but that's kind of, that. that's the way an F1 engine works. They are fussy. And oftentimes you will hear drivers get on the radio being like, no power, low power. Uh, or you'll hear them, you will hear engineers being like, huh, something's going on with your battery. All part of the rich tapestry of the turbo hybrid experience. <laughs> they are very cool, but they are like, I think probably like Swiss watch is underselling the delicacy of these things at times. Um, the other obsession in F1 is overtaking. Um, and because for a number of years, F1 was, <laughs> despite it being auto racing, there were a number of years where like you could watch an entire race and it felt a little bit like a processional or a parade. Uh, and people were sort of asking like, where is the show? And part of the reason for that is the way teams made faster and faster cars was by making more and more aerodynamically sophisticated uh, cars. But an aerodynamically uh, sophisticated car is a sensitive uh, car. And so a car that depends on aerodynamics for speed struggles when something is disturbing the air around it. Like, I don't know, other race cars. (laughs) <laughs> and so when you're trying to pass another car, regrettably, you do have to get close to it. And that kind of throws off the aero balance of the car. So F1 has, for a number of years, always been trying to figure out how do we lick this problem. They've got two solutions that are in play this year. The first is an old familiar uh, friend, the DRS system, the drag reduction system. This is a... Uh, it, it functions like a speed boost, even though it's actually, as, as I said, like drag reduction. What happens is to assist cars in, in closing the deal when they're, when they're following closely behind another car. On the track, there will be DRS detection zones. If, if the overtaking car passes through that DRS detection zone within one second of the car that it is running down, it gets the DRS system activated. That means that when they enter the zone, the DRS zone, uh, they will be able to open the rear wing, which basically the rear wing keeps the car sort of glued to the road and generates a lot of drag uh, doing that. Um, what you need to imagine is like suddenly it goes from being kind of like a, a huge like bar or wing in the air to being basically just a narrow strip of metal. All that drag kind of disappears and the car is being slowed down less by the air and theoretically is able to make up ground and overtake uh, the car in front of it. Doesn't always work. And some people have felt it's a little bit gimmicky. Uh, There are discussions ongoing about whether it will be needed uh, in the new era. Um, Mm. I think at times it has definitely helped the show, uh, but there, there have been races where DRS just wasn't working. And what you saw was 
people find other more interesting places to like find passing opportunities. And the other knock against it is there are some tracks where DRS makes it so predictable where the action is going to happen that the entire just like art of driving turns into get close to somebody as you approach a straight and then just let the DRS do the job, um, which straight line overtaking is not the most dynamic, but that's, that's one system uh, that F1 brings into play. And you will you will see it discussed a lot as people will like the discuss the crucialness of that one second uh, gap between cars. But this year, F one has really um, like let out all the stops trying to solve some of the aerodynamic issues. Um, the cars this year are completely different than we've seen in previous years. I'm not even like fully up on all the changes, but. There's a couple, uh, a couple major changes. One is that the cars have to be much more aerodynamically simple than they've been in years past. They are much more limited in terms of the way F1 technical regulations work is that if you think of like a blank template for a car, there are areas where the teams can sort of sculpt away at that template and create like aerodynamic surfaces that will interact with the air and generate performance. Then there are places where the FIA, where, where the, the, or the FIA, the, the organization that oversees formula one has set the rule that you just can't put anything here or you, or all you can do is like a really basic, like uh like structural part that you can't use as a performance part at all. That's kind of the approach they've taken aggressively this year uh, with making the cars, less aerodynamically um, sophisticated than they've been in previous years. I think if you look at F1 cars from a few years ago, they looked almost like really weird uh, weather vanes uh, in terms of the way they were built. Lots of little winglets and little like um, almost like antennae looking things, just tons of things to sort of like direct and channel air uh, in every conceivable direction. Cars this year are much simpler. The, The wings aren't quite like, Razor blade is simple, but it's closer to that uh, than what we've seen in previous years, and there's fewer of them. So that is the big change they've made, and the idea being that if these things are disturbing the air less, if they are less dependent on the air uh, for their speed, then they will be able to follow each other more closely and generate lots of racing action. Uh, related to that, and this brings us to sort of the other the other part of um, what makes F1 F1, how the sport works. The tires are completely different uh, this year. For ages, F1 ran 13-inch wheel rims. This year, they have went to uh, a much more road car standard 18-inch rim. Uh, and as a result, have fitted much bigger tires on all the cars. Um, that actually has huge aerodynamic uh, ramifications because if you think about like just the footprint of a car, the tire is going to be a huge surface that the the air is moving over and it's generating uh, turbulence on its own. So the tires are much bigger, but bigger tire um, arguably like can can lead to more grip. But uh, it, it is going to be a major change from what they've run uh, in the past. Um, 
Things are already off to a rocky start, by the way, with this new Aero entire package. Uh, at the testing, people are already complaining that when you get the cars at speed, they're doing a thing called porpoising, and drivers are like reporting headaches and blurred vision. Uh, mm. Because when you're running, um, what they're doing is they're running a lot of like what's called like ground effect aerodynamics, uh, which is basically like relying on aerodynamic surfaces under the car a little bit um, to sort of generate to to generate some uh, adhesion. Uh, that is at high speeds proving to sort of cut in and out a little bit that causes the car to like rise and fall really fast, um, which makes it feel like the car is sort of swimming uh, along the track. And apparently it's just a nightmare uh, if you're the person trying to drive the damn thing. So we'll see how all this goes, but already we've had our first sort of unforeseen consequence of, uh, of the new rules. But going back to tires, uh, tires are probably... Uh, the antagonist in some ways of an F1 driver's uh, craft. So all F1 tires are produced by uh, Pirelli. That's their manufacturer. F1 used to have multiple manufacturers, um, but now there's just Pirelli. And I think one thing that's changed is that in the past, it was always a question of who can just build the best tire. But the tire has been treated as a thing that can generate the most interesting action on the track. And so the tire is more of a product of how do we create interesting rules and uh, interactions in Formula One rather than just what is going to produce the best performance. So to that end, Pirelli has uh, been given a brief where they produce five tire compounds um, for a season. They run from a very hard compound to a very soft compound. Uh, the trade-off when you hear this discussed in F1 is that a harder compound um, is more durable but performs less. Intuitively think of it like, you know, what's going to be grippier, right? A softer thing uh, that's a little bit sticky or like a hard, slick thing. That's kind of the difference we're talking about. Uh, however, at each race, Pirelli will only bring a subset of those five compounds. And so at each race, you will hear the hard compound discussed, the medium compound, and the soft. Um, now, the hard at one track might be the medium uh, at another, depending on what they decide is right for the track surface. Um, but ultimately, they are drawing from this pool of five compounds. In the past, F1 teams have been allowed to sort of pick and choose like based on what they want the balance of their tire allocation for the weekend to be. That is also no longer the case. Pirelli just tells the teams you're getting, you know, say five sets of hards, three sets of, me of mediums, and like eight sets of softs or something. Just pulling the numbers out of thin air. Uh, but F1 teams, it turns out, kind of liked not having to find a competitive edge when it comes to tire allocation. And so kind of asked Pirelli to just take that off their plates, um, which kind of makes sense because F, like, if you've ever spent like hours staring at color swatches, trying to figure out like what the hell is the difference between these two things, <laughs> um, that's kind of how F1 teams get about performance, uh, where there will be a team of engineers like going blind, trying to figure out like what is the optimal tire allocation, and maybe it doesn't matter. Uh, but Pirelli now does that, uh, and they handle it. But the thing these tires are designed to do is wear, interestingly. Um, they are built to kind of degrade in performance at different rates, and a crucial rule in F1 
is that you have to run two compounds during a race. You cannot run the entire race on hards. You cannot run the entire race on mediums. You have to do it. You have to do one tire change in a race unless it's a wet race. And what that means is uh, tire strategy comes into play. Uh, You know, you can go longer on a hard tire, uh, but you get more performance on the soft. So teams try to figure out what is the most efficient uh, way to uh, sort of script their race uh, based on those. But because races are um, unpredictable, uh, that strategy can often be overturned over the course of a race. Um, and the other, the other thing they have to, the, the other thing they have to watch out for, uh, is of course, thing like things like tires degrading past the, like being stuck out on track with a rapidly set, set rapidly degrading set of tires. Um, that's sort of the nightmare situation. We'll discuss later the tire cliff, but the, the thing that all teams dread is getting it wrong and having to ask a driver to do several laps. Uh, on a set of tires that are no longer performing anywhere near optimal. Uh, so that's sort of the heart of F1 tire strategy. And it comes into when we discussed the, when we were discussing like how long pit stops, pit stop takes that is all calculated in relation to how long does it take to get into the pit lane? We have to observe a, a speed limit. How long is the pit lane? All of these things come into play. Uh, the other thing that comes into play is of course, weather. Uh, and it goes beyond just wet races, um, where they have two tire compounds for like a soaking wet track. You've got the full wets, uh, for like light misting conditions or light rain. You have the intermediates. Um, it gets very tricky. Intermediates are faster than full, fully treaded wets. Um, but teams, teams struggle with these issues too, because there's always an incentive to get on the hardest, fastest tire you can on a wet track. And so at every F1 race where like rain is intermittent, there'll be people saying, do we need to run a wet tire at all? Maybe we could stay on slicks. And that's where things get really dangerous because when a wet tra- when a racetrack gets like wet, a lot of the oils and discarded rubber that's on it just turns into like a sheer icy surface. Um, but other other uh, t- like weather effects matter a lot too. Like uh, maybe less this year, but like the cars are sensitive to wind. Um, if there's a crosswind, cars can have weird performance issues. Uh, Corners that are otherwise unremarkable can get unremarkable can get very scary uh, because a driver can suddenly like find themselves dumped into a spin. Uh, but I think the biggest one in recent years has probably been heat. Um, mm. The sun beating down on a track um, can make it scorching hot, which is hard on tires. But equally, a cold track surface is also really difficult to navigate. Uh, Pirelli's tires kind of have an optimal range where they're kind of happy to operate. Um, and that kind of it's their, their optimal range is like, think of a perfect summer's day and then think (laughs) how often do you actually see a perfect summer's day, uh, across, (laughs) across the Mediterranean, the middle East, uh, you know, East Asia, (laughs) uh, Northern Europe. How often do you see that? Um, and that's and 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 therein kind of lay some of the issues facing the teams. Mm. Um, you have tires that are built for some optimal conditions, and then the race weekend will throw you something completely different. 
Onward onto rules then, I guess. Thanks very much for that, Rob. Rules are a little bit less definable in a way. So I'm going to hold on to the parts that are definable and leave you with this little bit of advice, listener, that your your grasp of the rules will mature and develop as you sort of uh, understand, kind of like any sport, like baseball, like rugby, like basketball, you start to notice the surface level stuff, then you'll go a little bit deeper as you become more comfortable with that. Um, and also, the rules themselves, once you even have that knowledge, they're sort of open to interpretation. And the ending of last season was almost assuredly perhaps the the zenith of that particular aspect of being an F1 uh, fan. But uh, like I said, we're going to stick to the the some of the more tangible stuff just for a second to get you um, to get you into it. So number one is flags. So there are flags that are waved at the side of the um, uh, tracks by people who are employed, locals who are employed uh, to basically um, wave them. Uh, some of these flags also appear on the screens themselves for the driver, and they are meant to communicate certain conditions that the drivers uh, must then adhere to. Uh, yellow flag is perhaps the most common one. Uh, this comes in a couple of forms. There's a waved yellow where the flag is waved, which means no overtaking due to some sort of danger on track. Um, sometimes there are two yellow flags waved, known as double yellows, which means that the track is actually blocked. So absolutely no overtaking in that respect. Um, and then a single stationary yellow uh, means that there is danger, but it perhaps isn't actually on the line. It is perhaps slightly off the track, um, which is also used to sort of just tell people to, again, don't overtake, slow down, but you don't have to slow down as bad as a double a double waved. Um, green, on the other hand, much like traffic lights, means everything's fine, go ahead. Uh, usually they appear right after areas where yellows are. Um, the blue flag is something that certain drivers will see a lot. Uh, in F1, the car is going very fast. The tracks are not infinitely long, which means that often at a certain point you have drivers who are in the front who are gaining quarters of seconds or seconds over the drivers at the back of the field in slower cars, and they will end up basically reaching these cars that were uh, lower. Also, with what Rob was talking about, pit strategy, sometimes somebody will pit early and they'll drop further back on the circuit. In these respects, they don't want drivers racing with other drivers who are like 16 positions back on them. So in that respect, a blue flag is waved to the driver who is technically further back in the field. Uh, basically just means get out of the way. Make sure that the person who is a front runner is not slowed down or impeded in any way. Um, usually this means that there's a sort of compounding effect on those rear drivers as they're constantly having to go off the racing line and in many cases slow down to let the other cars uh, go ahead. Um, then we get into the more serious flags. Red flag means the session has stopped, usually because of uh, crash or particularly bad weather. A black flag, usually with the driver's number on it, is uh, very rare indeed. This means a disqualification for that driver, usually if they've broken some sort of cardinal rule or have uh, displayed reckless driving. But again, doesn't tend to happen. Comes, you know, with a lot of F1 drivers, hopefully at this stage, are sort of have their head screwed on. Um there is a even rarer one, which is a black uh, flag with an orange circle in the middle, uh, which is basically there to let the driver know that they have mechanical problems, but these drivers use radios, so oftentimes that's how they find out about those types of things. They just have the flags as fallbacks, because often 
radios break as well or don't work particularly well. Uh, there is a half black, half white flag, uh, which is for unsportsmanlike uh, driving. We have seen that in uh, recent years a little bit more. And there's a yellow and red striped one, which means that there is uh, sorry, debris on the track. Um perhaps also uh, oil on the track. Um, and uh, it's apparently rocked from side to side if there is an animal on the track. <laughs> I didn't know that. I yeah. don't know if I've ever seen that. Um, I am assuming that is roadkill animal and not a live animal, although there has I don't been... Know. There have been many You're probably live more animals. concerned about the live animal, though. Just yeah, that's true. Like, that's true. Yeah. Absolutely, like, no joke, like... You know, bird strike on a driver could be bad. One hundred percent. Yeah, imagine that. Imagine getting squirrel like there was at two hundred miles an hour. There was deer. I remember in in some uh, Le Mans stuff getting getting obliterated. Like Canada had a groundhog. Wow. Yeah. There was a Ra- lizard somewhere. There was. There was a lizard. Was the lizard in Singapore? There was one in Singapore. And I was, that yeah, was a fan. I was a fan. Yeah. yeah that was guy, a fan. Guy came Sorry. out on the track. Oh. Yep. Yeah, that was bad. Uh, rabbits and Silverstone mm-hmm. I've seen before as well. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, you're right. Maybe maybe ticking as well as uh, not ticking and then the, se- the checkered flag of course which is the famous black and white checkerboard flag is uh is letting you know that the uh, session is complete the practice is complete qualifying is complete race is complete usually you see it at the end of the race we have a celebrity waving it it's all lots of fun uh, there's also uh, another thing called a uh, there's a safety car and a virtual safety car uh, which are part of the uh, which i guess get lumped into this section it's kind of a weird i'm not really sure where this one would go really um uh, whenever a crash happens on the track in that is so serious that they really do not want drivers having to make the decision of how far they should slow down themselves or perhaps a crash has happened somewhere on the main straight where they it's blocked or the, the circuit is blocked and they want to drive people through the pit lane um, a special car called a safety car will drive out um, onto the track and it is behind this that the drivers will uh, sort of form a parade a conga line almost of of cars um one behind the other uh while they wait for the track to be um uh, fixed and then usually what happens is the safety car will pull in and the drivers will go off again uh, there are some particulars in relation to this for instance uh, we have started a, a a new rule in recent years where sometimes they will do another standing start like at the start of the race when all the cars are stopped on the start of the track and they all go and the lights go out and um, that we can restart races that way at uh, the end of last season there were some interesting interpretations of the rules with regards to safety cars and how they sort of get people back in the right order they're in because sometimes you'll have the people who are at the back or it's kind of stuck near the front of the conga line and it all gets a little bit weird um but we won't get too much into the details on that uh the other one about that is the virtual safety car is, is essentially a sort of a just imagine there's a safety car everyone and just <laughs> slow down to this uh, this very slow pace you're not allowed to go faster than this and we'll get this thing sorted out in a couple of laps so we don't have to bring out the safety car and it takes forever to get the race started up um this was a sort of a middle ground between a waved yellow flag and a safety car and it works pretty effectively it usually happens when something's happened slightly off the track or in a part of the circuit where it's not going to they're not going to be too worried about people removing that thing from the uh, track uh if you break the rules there are penalties um again lots of this you will sort of understand over the course of watching races but there are some like general types of uh, uh, penalties that you should know about 
There are time penalties where they add seconds to your uh, race, which can mean the difference between, you know, first and second, usually sixth and seventh or something like that. Uh, You can get a five second um, time penalty or a 10 second time penalty or there usually comes in five, though. Um, Common sort of small infringements or or breaking the rules a couple of times, like cutting corners too much, that type of thing. Um, You can get a drive through penalty, which is the worst, which means you have to drive through the pit lane, not let stop in those ones, um, which wastes an abundance of time because to slow down, to go through the pit lane, that whole thing, it can really add up like 30, 40 seconds onto your lap time. Um, That's for doing stuff like curb hopping and chicanes, skipping track limits egregiously, uh, cutting corners, that type of thing. Um, There are stop-go penalties, which usually come in the form of 5 or 10 seconds. Um, This can basically means that you have to come in when you're coming into the pits or maybe not when you're coming into the pits. Um, You have to come into the pits and stop in your pit box for that much time. Usually they try and couple this with doing a pit uh, a tire swap because hey we have to come into the pits anyway let's do that um that's for stuff like kind of um breaking cardinal rules of the sport like uh, jump starts at the start of the race uh, speeding in the pit lane ignoring those blue flags where you're meant to move over uh, or like fairly egregious uh, blocking of other cars um, yeah, and i think sometimes like there sometimes you'll get a stop go well there are they are rare but sometimes you'll get one where uh, they stipulate that the car has to come to the pit box, stop, and then leave, and you can't do anything yeah. about it. Uh, but sometimes, yeah, you're right, Danny. Teams will um, elect to serve a five or ten second penalty during their pit stop, or if they have a pit stop yet to go, they must serve their five to ten seconds there. If they don't have before they even work on the car, so you'll see mechanics like hovering over the car waiting for the <laughs> ten seconds to stop. Um, if, if they don't have any more pit stops, then the time is added at the end of the race to their overall race time. Yeah. Yeah. There's a couple of different like dials that are getting turned here. Also there's, there's often a window like you'll have, Oh, you've got like three or four laps to come in and serve that. So sometimes that can be quite handy. If you're at the end of a tire stint, then it's like, all right, let's just like wait this out a little bit longer and see where it ends up. Um, there are grid position uh, changes. This usually happens if you've done something at the end of a race, maybe, uh, and and they can't really knock you on the knuckles for that race, or maybe something happened in qualifying or practice. Or maybe you didn't uh, have enough fuel at the end. I think that's the most that's notable true. one recently, right, where Sebastian Vettel, I think, got a podium, but didn't have enough fuel for the sample they take at the end of each yeah. race. Yeah. Um, the uh, engine changes and, and gearbox changes before races, that type of thing. Um that can be part of it. Uh, you can get race bans, incredibly rare, extreme instances of people being usually aggressive, I feel like, like intentional, sort of like that's your first degree murder kind of uh, kind of problem there. Um, and they have changed one part, which is there was a uh, 10 place penalty that they would do if you got uh, f- three uh, reprimands. Uh, from the FAA that is up to five reprimands now. Um, I trying to remember there's a penalty point system as well which can which can also lead to race bans if you get accumulate too many of those over the course of 12 months uh, it does not reset at the start of a season so it's it's you just have to keep an eye on it it's kind of like penalty points on your driver's license um at least in the uk and ireland i'm, I'm assuming here um as well i've pro- i should probably know that <laughs> i have an american <laughs> driver's license and i drive here i've just never gotten pulled over um 
so yeah, lots of different uh, um, aspects of that. And then I, I think, you know, I'm not going to labor too much on this one. Uh, the, the sort of the number one, where do the rules apply moment you will find in Formula One, especially as you journey into the sport and some of the um, things are less apparent to you right away, rightfully so, it's quite um, opaque, some of this stuff, um, is the idea of defending your position. When are you blocking and when are you defending? Um, I, I feel like this year we are especially, um, I you know, personally I am especially unarmed uh, to deal with this because of the new cars, because of the way in which they overtake and follow each other and the places they can overtake and how DRS will be used, as Rob was talking about. All that sort of stuff is kind of up in the air. Even after practicing we haven't seen cars like racing each other you know um in the past it was stuff like you're not allowed to do double movements so you can't like jink left and then jink right because if they jink right and then you do a double move you'll just crash um abnormal changes in directions so you can't like serpentine around the track to try and like block somebody out that way um you can't block late like you kind of have to pick your line into a turn you can't just like last second decide you want to go on the inside and then you collide but then you're allowed uh, to regain the racing line for a turn exactly. so it gets into a the turn is like a there's an entry an entry to a turn and an exit and an apex and where those apexes and entries and exits are differ based on the racing line you take into them as well so you can get people who are boat right in certain certain scenarios um you know you're not it's letting people like, off the track that type of thing if you, if you watch american football like what is pass interference really right exactly like, yeah there's a lot of wiggle yes. room it is the fumble uh, or uh, incomplete pass problem you 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 get a lot of as well here. Um, uh, they have added, though, a a new feature to to the, how they can delegate rules. Well, I guess in one way they've changed that there are now two race, direct, race directors instead of one, but they've also added this uh, sort of video referee, as it were, which I think is based in Geneva, which is going to review certain incidents. We don't know how it's going to review it. We don't know if we're going to get optics on that. We don't know if they're going to make changes like other sports like soccer and stuff where they'll come back to stuff. Um we really don't know, um, but apparently that will feature in some respect in the 2022 season. But yeah, these new cars mean we know less now than we usually do going into a new season. It's true, but it also means it's fun because we don't know what will happen. Yeah. Um, there are a number of words that you'll probably hear when you're watching a race broadcast, um, in addition to seeing things like flags and penalties and uh, stuff like that. Um, so we're going to run down a few here of the of the more common ones. One of them is is box. You will hear your your the teams tell the drivers to box 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 box. This means pit. Um, I think there's some tradition for why they use this word, but I think it's also just easier to hear over the radio than pit. Mm. Um, it, it, Rob, I feel like this is a sort of past ten years thing as well, like. I don't think they said box for a while there. Maybe I'm wrong. Yeah, you know, honestly, when I think of like radio call, now we heard fewer radio calls in the That's 90s. True. But That's true. So yeah, I feel like pay. box became like the the lingua franca of uh, of F1 <laughs> for just telling you to get your ass into the pits, which makes sense. I imagine it's a bit like air traffic control, right? Where you got teams from all over the world, different right, drivers. Yeah. After a certain point, there's certain words that you just need people to understand exactly what you're saying. Pan, pan, um, pan. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, back markers are, as Danny was describing, uh, the ones who get blue flags are the, they're the lapped cars. So any car that's, uh, 
it's not on the lead lap or that you know in 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 they're usually used in context so mm. you know uh, the the leaders are coming up to some back markers um who wants to take marbles? Rob, you want to take marbles? Oh, I love marbles. Uh, AKA they marbles Clag. all over the track. They uh, just, just rolled them out on the track. It's just like wh- it's wacky wild coyote. Wacky <laughs> races. <laughs> kind of works that way. Um, yeah. So as these tires uh, run lap after lap under grueling conditions, they shed uh, little bits and pieces of rubber. And those tend to, uh, two things happen. They tend to accrete. A little bit uh, into like large, almost like lint balls, uh, into like larger and larger chunks of uh, of rubber. But then, as cars are whooshing by, they kind of dust off the racing line and make it clean, and it, it remains like a good surface for racing because like rubber is laid down there, the the track surface is sticky, but the little bits of discarded uh, rubber material get blown off to the sides. Mm. If you go out to the sides and miss the racing line, what you are now sitting on is a bed of marbles, rubber marbles, uh, that are going to disrupt your connection to the track surface, uh, meaning you lose grip. And also, for bonus points, uh, the marbles are often uh, covered in whatever bits of oil or engine fluid have also been dropped off the cars. Uh, and so they're, they're all lubed up. And uh, so getting getting out on the marbles uh, is pretty disastrous uh, because one, you'll probably have a real slow line through the corner. And two, now you got a bunch of crap on your tire uh, mm. that takes a little bit to dust off. So that's that's what people are talking about. Yes. Uh, Danny, you want to take oversteer and understeer? Oh, man. Sure. So when you are t- how, how best to explain this, I guess. Remember, the cars in Formula One have four sets of wheels and the drivers in the middle turning the front. So you have the wheels at the back that are spinning. You have wheels at the front that are driving. And much like everyone's favorite movie, the Fast and Furious Tokyo Drift, um, you, you, there's a differential. There's a difference between the way in which the 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 front of the car and the back of the car are sort of moving. So essentially, what you get in sorry, go on. I was just gonna. I, I have a good um, uh, analogy. Uh, way to, yeah, an, I guess analogy or a way to describe it. Better um, than Tokyo Drift. Well, I was gonna say <laughs> when you're when you're watching a car go around Tokyo Drift, the rear end is spinning out further than the front end, right? That's oversteer. Yes. And then when you're playing Gran Turismo and you're going too fast and you you hit the the joystick all the way to the left, but you still skid forward <laughs> off the track. That's bad <laughs> controls. That's understeer. <laughs> and the reason it's called oversteer understeer is because the perspective of the driver, you know, they are in the understeer scenario, they are turning as far as they can and the car just won't turn. And in the other scenario, they are... Uh, sort of undercorrecting, and the car is, is is swimming in that direction, and it's basically the sort of you know, it's what makes drivers drivers in F one. It's the ability to you know tame these beasts and keep the tra- the car on the track, let alone on the the racing line. Um, oversteer and understeer, big byproducts of tire wear that Rob was talking about earlier. All right, I kind of stole that one, Danny, so why don't you take Purple Sector as well? Sure, Purple Sector means you did good. So on the timing screens, you will see green and yellow coming up when people have done, you know, uh, good laps and or maybe laps that are underneath and that type of thing. Uh, if you see when it pops up purple, be it the entire lap or a sector, because they often break the circuits up into three different sections um, so they can see which cars are doing well in what section. Uh, if you get a purple lap, um, it can mean your best or it can mean the best. Basically means that you've done the fast 
fastest time in that sector um, or on that lap. Uh, there are personal purples, but off, most of the time when we see purple sectors, they are, you know, in qualifying sometimes, uh, it's usually uh, based on everyone uh, who's there. So the more purples yeah, per- you get, the better. Purples typically everyone, green is, is a personal best. Mm. And then yellow is did not improve. Uh, next one, I'll, I'll take this one, the undercut. You'll hear this one a lot when talking about tire strategy. So if you are following a car that you want to pass, you can pit before that car and get on fresh tires. Now, because you've pitted, you spent, you know, 20 seconds doing your pit stop. You come out way behind that car that you were chasing. But because you are on new tires, you're actually going faster than him. Um, So that when he comes in and finally does his pit stop, you have made up time. So he might actually come out behind you. That's the undercut. There's also something called the overcut, which is the reverse. If you are in the lead and you pit first, uh, you can come out and be going faster so that when your rival behind you pits later, uh, you've already made up ground on them too. Does that make sense? I think I did that right. Yeah. Reads to me. Who's got the next one? Um, this is about tire wear. I'll just, I'll just take them both. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, so quick thing about like the way F1 tires work is like temperature control is the key to them. Uh, the core, the, 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 the heart of the, the rubber tire, uh, you want to, it takes longer to bring up to the right temperature and needs to be brought up like more slowly. The surface temperature fluctuates wildly depending on like how hard you're breaking into corners. Um, Two phenomena that come, you're going to hear a lot about is blistering and graining. And both of those really have to do with how the tire is wearing on track. Uh, of them, blistering is probably worse. Uh, so let's talk about that one real quick. It's a bit like a skin blister. Honestly, think of it. Think of it that way of like when you have a bit like a burn or something and like the skin gets loose and there's like a little pocket of uh, like, um, you know, damage, damaged skin. And, and then the, there's good there's good like fresh skin under there. But you end up with that that effect. That's kind of what's happening with tire blistering. And that's bad because the thing is, that's that's uneven wear. And you want these things to wear in as evenly as possible. And once you have like a tire blister form where uh, maybe like part of the tire surface is get is routinely like getting too hot and too damaged, um, when that blister like bursts, you'll have a large chunk of rubber just kind of slough off all at once. And that unevenness tends to beget more blisters and more unevenness mm-hmm. and wears through the like optimal like best part of the tire faster so blistering is a really bad thing to see graining uh nobody likes it but it seems to happen a lot and it never seems like quite as big a deal as people describe it to be uh because it is so so routine graining is a bit more where uh as opposed to blisters what you have is uh still fairly even wear forming on the on the tire but it is not it's it. I guess the reason it's sort of called grain is a bit like the grain of the tire, like a wood grain. It begins to degrade and uh, like like fall apart in again, sort of an uneven uh, pattern. 
And that's also associated with worse performance and just difficulty keeping it in optimal temperature range, which means just it's more difficult to uh, manage wear. So those are both kind of uh, signs that um, tires are not wearing well. Um, I guess the the super version of the blister is the flat spot. Uh, when somebody locks up their brakes and the wheel mm. the wheel stops spinning, car keeps going while trying to dump speed, and you know take a circle, just shave off a, a little like straight line of it. Now yeah. you don't have a circle anymore. That's a flat spot on a tire, um, and that never goes away. Like drivers will feel it every time it goes around. It will consistently cause grip issues. Uh, so that's kind of the worst thing you can do to a tire, uh, which means it's extra awesome that it's the thing that you're most likely to do right after you get a fresh tire uh, because <laughs> it's not a temperature. Um, tire cliff, already talked about it, but basically tires come to optimal temperature, they have an optimal band, and then they slowly get like less grippy. They perform less over time. All of this is expected. Keep a tire yeah. out long enough. It stops having that even wear line and stops having that slow, steady degradation performance. And instead, abruptly starts to feel like the entire car was like dipped in grease. And at that point, like the car basically becomes undrivable for the drivers. And so when you go over the cliff, um, we see it less now. But a few years ago, drivers were really pushing tires uh, routinely pretty far to see if they could hold on to track position. And instead of being like maybe a second lap slower uh, than a pursuing rival, abruptly when you hit the cliff, you can be like, 8, 10, 12 seconds a lap slower because, again, effectively, it's like you're driving on an icy road and nobody else is. Um, they do it less now because the tires can explode. Um, if you're pushing closer to the tire cliff, you're also pushing closer to the structural limits of the tire because underneath all that rubber, there is a structure um, that if you get down to it, uh, the tire integrity just can completely come completely undone. Uh, and we've seen that happen uh, in a number of years. So teams are pushing less. They're pushing up to the cliff a lot less than they were, I'd say, like three years ago, where like at times it seemed like tires were super durable. So teams just kept pushing their luck. Um, a few high profile like tire bursts. They're not doing that as much, but that is what we're talking about. When we're talking about the tire cliff. Uh, yeah, and I'll just take the last one here. Brake bias. This is one of the many things that the drivers have to... You, if you watch the onboard cameras with the drivers and you look at their hands on their steering wheel, you'll notice that they're basically like programming their cars live on the fly as they go around a lap. They're just adjusting so much stuff. One of them is brake bias. It's probably the most common thing that you'll see. A lot of plus minus 50%, 48%. Uh, and that's just, you know, when you when you hit the brakes, um, you can adjust in your Formula One car the 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 um, I guess the 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 bias on how much your front tires versus your back tires will get the brake pedal. So in a in a uh, normal car, you know, in a road car, it's what it's probably fifty percent. When you hit the brakes, all four of your tires are going to slow at the same time. Um, there are reasons that an f1 car might want to change a little to the front a little to the back um not not only lap by lap but corner by corner so uh there's a there's a lot that goes into driving a race car just yeah uh, I think it's your road car might that. might have like abs or something like that but uh f1 cars That's do not true. have traction control or abs or any of that sort of stuff they could yeah, good point but it would not be nearly as fun be too easy 
Let's take it to the calendar, Danny. Sure. So this year was uh, meant to be the longest season in F1 history. We've been doing a lot recently with uh, 23 rounds. Uh, We are currently down to 22 rounds because the Russian Grand Prix has been axed. It was meant to be the final year of the Sochi Autodrome, uh, sort of perhaps the second most reviled track in all of F1. Um, uh, uh, then it was meant to move to a new uh, track outside uh, St. Petersburg, but that has also been torn up. So we are out of Russia for the foreseeable because of their uh, illegal war and invasion and uh, perhaps subsequent occupation of Ukraine. Um, so we are down to 22 races. They are thinking of adding another one in. It looks like Turkey might be the one. We have a gap in September because of that Russian race. Um as of this recording, we do not know. It is only uh, 22 rounds. We start in, and these go all over the world. Loads of different countries. Sometimes it makes sense. Sometimes it doesn't make sense. They're in Europe. We'll go to Canada for a bit. We'll come back to Europe. Um, but it takes place over the course of uh, the year, from uh, the end of March until the end of November. Uh, so we start off in Bahrain, at the Bahrain International Circuit in Sakhir on the 20th of March. Um, do you want color for each of these or should I just do the calendar? I feel I like think we, we just we'll, do the calendar. Yeah, because we, we'll, I go through these basically on the race weekend. Um, we're staying in the Middle East uh, during that time to go back to Jeddah, which we almost finished. We finished the season on last year. It was, uh, so we're, we're going back right away. Second to last last, last year, I think. I think we Sorry? finished in Abu Dhabi. Sorry, you're right. Sorry, of course. Yes. Um, uh, the, yes. Uh, we are in, so Jeddah on the 27th of March, so it's a week later, in Saudi Arabia. Then we are back to Australia, Albert Park Circuit in Melbourne. Um, having some pretty terrible weather there over at the moment, I believe, as well. Um, I'm not sure if Melbourne's been affected by that, but hopefully it should still all be going ahead. We did not have Australia for a number of years because of the coronavirus pandemic. It is a fantastic circuit, uh, traditional start of the race season, uh, but I'm delighted to be going back on the 10th of April. Then we are going back to Imola, which recently signed, I believe, a five-year deal. Just got announced earlier today uh, uh, to uh, continue going back to Imola, the Emilia-Romagna Grand Prix on the 24th of April. Um, then we are going to a new track for this year, which I had completely forgotten about, the <laughs> Miami Grand Prix at the Miami International Autodrome in Miami Gardens on the 8th of May. Excited to see what that track is all about. We had a couple of new tracks last year, a couple of returning tracks as well, uh, but Miami is, uh, is fresh, so looking forward to that. Then we are going to Spain, back to Europe for Circuits de Barcelona, Catalunya on the 22nd of May. It's where testing happens as well, so you've probably seen a lot of it recently. Uh, we're staying in the region, going to Monaco, which is sort of the crown jewel of the F1 season. Even though the circuit itself is perhaps not the most exciting in terms of overtaking, the spectacle is worth it. On the 29th of May, we'll be back in Monaco. Then we're going to Azerbaijan, Baku, City Circuit on the 12th of June, a recent edition of sorts. Uh, very popular. We have lots of very interesting races in Azerbaijan. And when they haven't been interesting, Romain Grosjean has intentionally crashed, or accidentally crashed, sorry. Uh, speaking of French, vaguely, uh, we're back to also the Canadian Grand Prix, Circuit Gilles Villeneuve in Montreal on the 19th of June. Another track that we love here at Shift F1 that we have not been able to enjoy over the past couple of years. Canadian f- uh, fans also are super cool, so it'd be great to see them back in the grandstands on Ile de Montreal. Uh British Grand Prix then on the 3rd of July at Silverstone. It's where the first ever F1 Grand Prix happened in 1950. Uh, Super track has been changed a lot over the years. Great fans there too. Then we're off to the Red Bull Ring, which is the 
it used to be the A1 ring. It is the Red Bull owned circuit in Spielberg, Austria for the Austrian Grand Prix on the 10th of July. Uh, we continue our French, our European affair uh, with the French Grand Prix in Circuit Paul Ricard, which I absolutely hate, on the 24th <laughs> of July. Then we're going to the Hungara Ring in Hungary on the 31st of July. Uh, the Belgian Grand Prix in the uh, infamous Spa Francorchamps, longest track of the year, on the 28th of August. We are going to the Dutch Grand Prix, which only recently rejoined the calendar in Zandvoort on the 4th of September. Expect lots of orange Max Verstappen fans at that one. Uh, we're at the Italian Grand Prix um, uh, in Monza on September 11th. Uh, another very popular racetrack, that one. The second in the sort of general Italian region. Um, Imola being the other one of course uh, although whether or not that's in Italy or San Marino <laughs> is something that I have to learn every single year I guess it's technically in Italy but whatever um, then Russia was meant to be there so we'll see if Turkey pops up there or something else does uh, in any case we will be in Singapore in the Marina Bay Street Circuit for the first time in Donkey's Ears uh, on the 2nd of October another one that we did not have because of the coronavirus pandemic same with Suzuka Back to Japan on the 9th of October. We're into the final four here, folks. The second United States Grand Prix, uh, although it is still called the United States Grand Prix, is at Circuit of the Americas in Austin, Texas on the 23rd of October. I know lots of our uh, listeners go to that one and tell us all about it every year. Then we're off to uh, Mexico for the Mexican Grand Prix in the Autodromo Hermanos Rodriguez on the 30th of October, straight away after the U.S., and then the final two races this year, we are going to Sao Paulo uh, for another famous track, Interlagos, on the 13th of November. And then we finish, as we have always done, uh, in the modern era at least, at the first of the sort of Middle Eastern expansion um, uh, circuits, and certainly not the last now, Abu Dhabi Grand Prix in the United Arab Emirates, the Yas Marina Circuit just outside of Abu Dhabi. Uh, we will finish the season on the 20th of November. Excellent. If you'd like to watch Formula One and you live in the U.S., ESPN is uh, perhaps your best option if you've already got the channel. Uh, ESPN really just means, in this case, a dice roll between ESPN, ESPN2, <laughs> ESPN News, ESPN ESPNU, and, uh, and ABC. Uh, so you never really know, but we post the schedule uh, on Twitter uh, ahead of every race weekend along with the Times and the TV station uh, for each session. Um, the times can also be erratic, so stay tuned for that. Uh, if you are outside the U.S., racefans.net has a good uh, crowdsourced list of what um, service F1 shows on, so we will link that in the show notes. Uh, by the way, you can always look at our show notes either in your podcast player or at the website f1.cool. Yes, that is a URL that you can type into your browser. <laughs> um, but the other option... Uh, is F1 TV. This is Formula One's streaming service. It is available in two tiers. The pro tier allows you to watch the sessions, including the races, live, while the access tier only allows on-demand on demand viewing two days after the race has happened. Uh, the pro tier is 80 bucks a year, although it's currently on sale for $64 until March 13th, while the access tier is $27 a year. Um, that's all that info is for the U.S. Though your country may differ in price and offering for F1 TV, uh, but we'll put some links in the show notes um, that uh, that uh, 
will tell you about your country uh and you can they, also and they've added in a lot of i feel like original programming over the past couple of years in recent mm-hmm. years they've added pre-show and post-show stuff as well so there's yeah. a lot there you know i'm a big fan of it so far i've, I've you know I've been, I've been enjoying the off season um uh, you know checking in on testing and all that stuff too yeah there's a hefty archive too of past mm. races uh, they don't have everything but they have a lot of races going all the way back um they also f1 has a youtube channel that posts highlights from every session um which are are well edited and they usually post pretty quickly so Mm. if you uh i mean a lot of the time i i watch the highlights of practice just to kind of get a sense usually you've Um, woken up and it's happened (laughs) as well a lot of the time i I rarely watch the races live i either watch them with like on demand via the espn apple tv app which is pretty convenient uh or with f1 tv um, nice. Whereas I'm a sicko and I will wake up at 5 a.m., 6 a.m. Yeah, I don't get that. Watch it, watch it You're live. on the West Coast like me, too. I, yeah. Rob, at least, you know. You can, yeah. What is it, eight or nine? That's not so bad, Rob. That seems livable. I, I always watch it on delay anyway. I'm, I'm not hardcore <laughs> like that. I'm like, I will get to you at mid-morning at the earliest. Uh, and if um, you are on the YouTube ecosystem, I would recommend following Chain Bear F1, mm. uh, the YouTube channel. Uh, Chain Bear does amazing technical deep dives in a really accessible way about uh, very specific things in F1 that have really added to my enjoyment uh, of the sport. Um, but finally, I just wanted to say thanks for listening. Welcome to all the F1 newcomers out there. I know it can yeah. be intimidating to jump right in. Uh, the deep end and a lot of the old farts of f1 can often be protective but racing is for everyone and that is what we believe the this whole show as we mentioned started back in 2014 with danning teaching me episode by episode could you imagine the blind leading the blind (laughs) (laughs) and our goal is to keep the show accessible so that more people can can learn about it too uh that's not to say that you know we dumb down things or anything uh, but we try not to assume that people know what it, you know, what an undercut is, for example. Um, so if you have questions, please write in at shiftf1podcast at gmail.com or go to f1.cool slash emails. Even if you think we've answered the question before, because we love hearing what's, you know, what's what's difficult to grasp. Um, and chances are, if you have that question, then others do too. You can also hit us up on Twitter at Shift F1 Podcast. I'm at Drew Scanlon. That is at Daniel Dwyer and at Rob Zachney. We also have an F1 Fantasy League that you can join with the link in the show notes. Uh, and if you want, you can ask other listeners uh, what's up um, on the official Shift F1 Discord chat, uh, which is also pretty newbie friendly. Uh, and if you uh, want to do that, you can join it via Patreon. Speaking of Patreon, Danny... Yeah, just to let people know as well, I guess, uh, you know, not not to tell our live stories, but uh, we do this in our spare time. All three of us uh, work in some realm of the world of video games. That's how we all sort of know each other. Drew works for a developer. I make documentaries about video games. Rob works for uh, one of the best publications in the industry reporting on video games. Um and yeah, we do. This is like the fun thing that we do. This isn't our, you know, nine to five or anything like that. Um, 
but uh, it's, it's sort of testaments to how much we enjoy doing this that we've been doing it for as long as we have. Um, uh, in recent years, we started a Patreon because it seemed like the thing to do because hosting fees and all that sort of stuff. And we thought it'd be fun to do some bonus things and spend more time on this one, spend more time doing research, um, you know, setting up the Discord and, and doing all our other bits and bobs. And we've even done a little bit of video. So if you're interested at all, um, the Patreon basically keeps this whole thing ad free as well. We don't we don't have ads on the podcast or, or anything like that um so if you'd like to go over to patreon.com slash shift f1 you can join up uh there are three tiers we put in there uh the first is uh five bucks a month that gets you access to uh, a bonus podcast every month and also of course all the other bonus podcasts so if you signed up today you get access to god couldn't even tell you 20 30 extra podcast something like that uh, and they're all pretty long and fa- fairly well researched everything from uh spec you know s- sort of introductions 101s on other types of racing series like for instance last year we did one on w series the all women uh driving championship um we also do lots of uh, reviews of uh documentaries uh, because a lot of our audience watch motorsport documentaries or the season drive to survive so there is countless uh, you know, sort of discussions on on stuff like Drive to Survive or uh, the um, Schumacher documentary last year. We even did one on Speed Racer, <laughs> you know, famous oh my uh, God. Formula One documentary, Speed Racer. Um, <laughs> the Michael Fassbender series, Grand Prix Driver, uh, loads of stuff like that. Um, so chances are we've done stuff on MotoGP in the past. There's loads of bits and bobs there. Uh, if you go back, uh, if you go into $10 tier, there's some video stuff going in there. Uh, traditionally, I sort of ran a lot of this stuff, did track walks in the video games for all of the circuits. Um, I think those have run their course for the while because I've done multiple track walks multiple years. Generally, it's the same thing every time. Um, so before the season starts, I'll have some updates on some new video stuff that's going to be there. Uh, two things I can tell you is that the opening of card packs, I found a bunch of F1 tw- season 2021 card packs <laughs> in Ireland. There was only two left in my local shop in my hometown when I was back last month. So I grabbed those. We'll do a live uh, un, uh, opening of those. Uh, we also still have to uh, drink Daniel Ricardo's wine, Drew. Mm-hmm. So we'll have to record that over the next couple of weeks. Um, so we'll have some new video stuff uh, there if you want to support at that tier. And then finally, we have a premium tier for uh the folks who wants to have their names it's almost like they're emblazoned on our uh on our on the side of the car itself uh if you um wants to have your name read out at the start of the podcast we have we almost put it up as a joke like a 50 dollars a month tier just to get your name read out and 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 uh you know be like f1 teams have that beautiful benetton or Marlboro written across our faces um but we actually uh, have sponsors like there's actual companies in here and it yes, feels very actually, much like you know this is the, our livery it's amazing it's become one of my favorite parts of the podcast as we read out everyone's uh, names who were in there at the start of uh at the start of the season so or at the start of each podcast um except this one is the only one that they don't get on um uh, yeah, so you can sign up monthly, you can sign up annually, you get 8% off, so it basically means a free month. Um, and uh, yeah, a massive thanks to all of the folks who have uh, supported us and, and you know, kept kept us going. And uh, yeah, we really appreciate it. It's, uh, it's, it's a lot of fun doing this podcast. And if nothing else, I think the Patreon has been great in allowing us the time to like to actually like say oh no i'm getting we're getting paid for this let's put time aside to do the research instead of sort of the the also 
also ran thing that we would do during the week, you know, uh, just a little less structured. So I think the podcast has improved a lot because of uh, of starting that. So, yeah. But no, you don't need to either. There's no ads on anything. So, you know, support it on. We're just glad to have you. Awesome. Well, final thoughts, Rob Zachney. Uh no thoughts, head empty. Uh, anything could happen this season. I think mean, this is the most excited I've been uh, for a season in a while. We're coming off an all-timer of a season. Um, but this year, I have no idea who is going to perform uh, and who's going to faceplant. And it's so exciting to feel like for the first time in a while, the, the slate isn't completely clean. But it's closer than it's been in a long time. Yeah. Danny, how about you? I would love to make a prediction. Um, I I struggle to. There are so many things that have changed. Usually between a season, a couple of drivers have moved, one car has improved, maybe a rule change here or there. You can kind of go, oh, I bet this will happen, that will happen, and you're kind of looking at the minutia. There's so much noise here. I can't. I can't. This. Mm-hmm. I can't figure it out. I can't look at all of the stuff. Um, for anyone who's joining F1 and, you know, you know whether or not they've listened to this in, in March or whether or not they have decided to get into F1 later in the year and they've gone back to listen to this, um, usually after the first race, a lot of those questions are answered. Uh, I think it's going to take a lot of races for us to get to some of these answers. Yeah, we'll probably point. see who the ones who are tanking are, but yeah, it's going to be very interesting to see which driver accidentally found themselves in a great car and accidentally found <laughs> themselves in a lemon. Yeah, and I guess it makes it much harder um, when we're recording this because we've had one kind of test, uh, but the real <laughs> test <laughs> is uh, is this weekend. So, right. um, yeah, be on, be on the lookout for that. I guess we will have a, uh, a next week our, our, our pre our pre race episode will also take into account what we what we've learned from testing, if anything. Uh, can't believe it's um, this close. I know we're almost there. I'm so excited. Uh, if you would like to support the show and get access to all of our bonus episodes and the official Shift F1 Discord, you could do so over at patreon.com slash shiftf1. Have a good race weekend, everyone. We will see you all next week. Mm-hmm.